Cinemodities! Late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Buzz. I got the fuzz. I make the elevator do what she does. Before we get into our next movie in the Unexpected Love series, I know everybody listening is just dying to scream out who they think loves this movie. But we'll get there. Well, you could, in the privacy of your own home, or maybe not privacy, wherever you are, you can feel free to scream, you know, at the podcast, whenever you like. But before we get there, we have a little bit of administrative business to take care of in the form of another email from a fan. So this email comes... uh, to us a little differently in the sense that it is a response to a previous episode of Cinemodities. I think it's been, what, a month and a half since it came out, but if you all can recall, our first episode of 2020 was about the incomprehensible blockbuster Vanilla Sky. And a good chunk of that conversation, Zach and I had the question about having sex four times in one night. If it was possible, if it meant something, all that stuff. So just to refresh your memory. Whether your body any- makes a promise when you do a certain thing. <laughs> oh, God. I'm laughing just thinking about that monologue. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, someone seemed going through some of the, uh, you know, catching up to our episodes. Uh, listen to this. And they felt strongly enough to reach out to us through email about their opinions with this. Or maybe their experience. I don't know. Since it is of a sexual nature, uh, we're you know not going to say who it is explicitly. We'll give him a pseudonym. I think we're calling him Barry. Is that right, Zach? Oh, yes, Rob. All right. And I'm going to go ahead and read this email because I think if Zach tries to read it, uh, we'll be here for half an hour because every time we talk about it, he starts <laughs> laughing like crazy. We get this email with the subject, Vanilla Sky Sex Four Times. So right off the bat. <laughs> We know it's going to be great. <laughs> and this that's the subject. The body of the email contains the following. To answer your question, the answer is yes, it is possible. Without going into detail, it is possible. Just not something you should ever, ever try. I believe her when she says that if you have sex four times in one night, you've got to love each other. By the morning, you do feel dead and super dehydrated. And then in a new paragraph, and yes, it does mean something. (laughs) So we have it right from the audience. Apparently it is possible. It sounds sounds like Barry uh, has had experience with this to some extent. Uh, The only thing that I'm a little, not disappointed, not upset, I love that we got this email at all, but it still includes, or our question from the Vanilla Sky episode still stands, what constitutes a sex session? We still don't have an answer to that, but you know maybe we'll get there one day. Uh, this is certainly, since it's not restaurant-centric, it's certainly not something that's highly prioritized. So, Zach, i got to throw it over to you. What are your thoughts on this? Because I think uh, you saw this email before I did, and you were basically like, you got to reply to this, and whenever you do reply, make sure you tell Barry that I was laughing nonstop. What'd you say? It killed you or something like that? It, it practically did. Cause I was not expecting this. Like, and I checked my email and I'm like, what? Like Rob said, you read that subject line. You're like, <laughs> hello. 
and then you read the con this like and it's just oh god it's so just blatant there's no sugar coating in that email at all it's just like i've done it i don't recommend it <laughs> buy all the orange juice that weekend and i'm like I'm like, okay. I'm like, you know what? You answered my question. I'm not disappointed. I, I got exactly what I wanted in the yep. in a very bare bones way, but I'm satisfied. So um, bravo, Barry. Bravo. Because it should be mentioned that uh, Barry sent us another email, and he actually mentions his girlfriend. So mm-hmm. bravo, Barry's girlfriend. Whatever you're doing, clearly it's working. So uh, maybe your book's in order. Maybe we can we can have some sort of what uh, – what tantric sex cinematis tantric sex guide or something <laughs> the vanilla sky ooh, edition ooh that's interesting like a an updated version of the kama sutra but cinematis centric <laughs> cinema sutra cinema sutra Audit okay sutra, something, something like that like, yeah <laughs> we got to work on the portmanteau but okay i can get behind that um i did respond to barry um regarding the vanilla sky email um so he has that we are now getting into our Next, Unexpected Love Movie. So I think we should just kick it off with the usual, well, scream out. Who do you think loves this movie? Is it Rob or is it Zach? All right. While our audience is screaming, I do want to add is that if you don't already know who chose this movie just based on the title, you are not a fan of this podcast. I think every, <laughs> everybody knows based on this title who picked this movie, and it's not me. <laughs> yes. This is a movie I love immensely. God damn, do I love this movie. And before we get into it, I, I want to give, you know, a little bit of the background, because as we said at the start of this series, you know, the whole concept of unexpected love is movie that movies that we tell other people about or show to them, and they go, really? You love this? This one is interesting, and I really wanted to discuss it, well, of course, because I love it, but in the context of unexpected love... I have to say that this isn't kind of an across the board. Do I get that response from it? And I'm not trying to be sexist or anything. This is an absolute fact of my life. Every single male I've ever showed this to gives me the, really? I hated that movie. How can you love it? Every single female I've shown this movie to also loves it to some capacity. So, so we're coming at a kind of a weird stance from this one. All my old girlfriends, anybody I've hung out with, you know, of, of the, the female gender, they have enjoyed this. But, like, this movie's such a weird one because the beginning usually wraps people up. Like, I don't think, I think everybody enjoys the, the suicide opening scene of this movie. But by, like, 30 minutes in or 45 minutes in, uh, every guy I've ever, you know, shown this to is like, this is one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. So I, I think I, before I give some history on this, I got to throw it over to Zach, because if I remember correctly, when we were sharing our unexpected love films with each other, Zach had no knowledge of what this movie even was. Is that right? Indeed, Rob. So now that you've seen it, what are your thoughts? All right. Well, okay, so I want everyone to know that when he pitched this, I'm like, of course, Rob would pick a movie called The Hudsucker Proxy. Um, before <laughs> it's I, a I, crazy dad, goddamn yes. name. This, this is a Rob title, folks. Rob would have loved this movie if it was just two hours of just nothing but white. The, the title sold him on this. <laughs> um, I Again, I had no, never heard of this movie, never did any research. And when I saw the poster for it, I'm like, oh, no, it's going to be weird Rob crap. Much like last week we had uh, We Need More Girly Shit. This is like, oh, this is going to be weird Rob shit. I'm like, ugh. I'm like, I don't want to watch. Because I didn't know anything about it. All I know is like Tim Robbins mm-hmm. and Jennifer Jason Lane. I'm like, uh, uh. 
I'm like, we had adventures in babysitting. That was nice. And as and I started walking, Zach's like, we're going back off the rails again. Oh, geez. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> ugh. And then, like, I started watching it, and I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I not as much as Adventures in Babysitting, okay. because once I saw the credits and I saw the Coen Brothers, I said, um, "I don't think I've ever said it. I don't like the Coen Brothers. I think they they make okay movies, but mm-hmm. it's very similar to the same thing as to why I don't like Edgar Wright. They make only one type of movie, and that's it. And I'm like, sure. and it's kind of, it's like a lot of filmmakers like Tarantino, unfortunately is falling into that trap now where they make a very specific type of movie. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And then like, I'm watching the, the set design and I feel the biggest character in this movie is the set design, like oh, poor Tim Robbins, Jennifer Jason Lee. Yes. I, I figured that. And I'm like, okay, no, cause I, I did, I did enjoy this. <clears throat> and I should say that like, I kind of love it when Rob chooses actual movies and we don't watch <laughs> weird esoteric crap where like, okay, Zach, we're doing our fourth animal collective thing. Or here's the idiot box, a bunch of six minute clips that were shown on MTV in between commercials. Um, I, I, I should have put some weird sort of disclaimer on Rob when we started this podcast that cinematic doesn't just mean media. And um, no, I've actually again, I enjoyed this. I love that Rob actually chose movies for a change, and I I I started to lose a little bit interest. The movie I think loses some steam about I think about an hour or so into the movie. Once we get the hula hoop plot, that's when I think it starts to slow down. Okay. Um, but prior to that, no, I was firmly on board with everything. Um, I get it. We'll get into this later on, but um, I get why this nobody remembers this movie unless you're a Cohen's brother. Yeah, Cohen Brothers fan. Mm-hmm. Um, as to why men don't like it and women do, I have no idea. I have no insight into that whatsoever. Um, but no, I enjoyed it. I was uh, thank God it wasn't Rob crap. <laughs> so I think I think that's usually um, maybe the 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 set of movies that I have the unexpected love for. You know, when people get to know me, they know I love the weird crap. And then when I show them something that's you know like a kitty adventure or a uh, like a romance story in some sense, then they're like, really? You love this? I think that's what loses the the male friends that I've shown this to, is the, it's, you know, a big chunk of this movie is a romance, for sure. And I got nothing against that, you know? It's, uh, it can be done poorly, it can be done well, like I think it is in this movie. Um, but a little bit of bad logic I want to throw out of there, out there. So since you enjoyed this movie, Zach, that implies you are female, correct? <laughs> Rob, don't don't assume my gender. Perfect. I don't okay. like that. Okay. Don't do that. You're, Fifty woke points deducted. Zach uh, is a hula hoop. That's his gender. <laughs> you know it. There you go. He finally got it right, folks. Don't we took a hundred and something plus episodes, but he finally correctly gendered me. <laughs> All right. So I did want to give a little bit of my history with this movie uh, because I think it is it is the thing that uh, Zach has said a few times now. The name. So this was not a movie that I saw on VHS like ba- Adventures in Babysitting at my grandma's house back in the day. This I found a long time later, and it actually falls into the same category of discovery as Freaked from way back when. If you recall, I would watch like HBO and TV in the morning before going to school back in you know middle school and high school, and that's where I found Freaked. Like I got to see 20 minutes of it, and I thought it was hilarious, and I sought it out afterwards. I remember... Looking through the TV guide, you know, uh, the menu on the TV one morning, and I see the name The Hudsucker Proxy. And I was like, okay, I got to see what this is. I don't remember, like, which 20, 30 minutes I caught originally, but I do know that's how I found it. 
And I, I sought it out. I watched the whole thing. And I have loved it ever since. I love this movie so goddamn much that it. I was actually a little disappointed in myself. Because when I watched it and took notes, my notes are pretty much just me quoting the movie. <laughs> I honestly think, and of course opinionated, this is a perfect movie. I love absolutely every single aspect about it. I quote this movie, I think, on a daily basis, whether it be to myself or other people. It is absolutely fantastic. And I think another thing you brought up is that it is kind of forgotten. I think that's a little bit of a bummer because I know people like the Coen brothers. But, you know, uh, to think of one that, you know, got a lot of love, at least from when I was an undergrad trying to show this to people, everybody loves The Big Lebowski. And don't get me wrong, I like that movie too. But that movie is nothing in comparison to this one. And I know since you're not a big fan of them, you know, you're not going to think that same way. But I, is there something, is there some reason, or maybe I couldn't find it in my research, maybe you have some insight on it, why this one got forgotten? Even though, you know, we'll get into how it didn't really do well in the box office. But it's just like nobody talks about this. You, you hear about, you know, Fargo so much more. You hear about The Big Lebowski so much more. And they're almost, you know just eternally in the zeitgeist it seems when i talk to uh, with movies with people about movies and nobody knows what this is and it, it, it's weird to me for the record i have no history with this film so I'm not gonna waste anybody's time as i was watching this the marketer in my brain was like oh i get why people didn't like this okay it's too stylized a it's the the set designs just it's overwhelming Everything like that's the thing about Art Deco. I get it. They're setting it to do Art Deco, but Art Deco like stopped being popular by the late fifties. Mm-hmm. And even when Art Deco was popular, it wasn't everywhere. And sure. everything about this movie, and it's kind of one of the reasons why I hate the nineteen eighty nine uh, Keaton Batman movie. It has that very imposing, over the top, just set design where everything's just so every every design, every set is just dialed up to eleven. Mm-hmm. That where it feels like the characters are almost, it's almost like they're claustrophobic in the film because it's just like everything's just the architecture, the angles. It's just, ugh, I, I just don't like it on a visual level. It just, I don't care how good the performances are or if it's really the first Batman done well. It's just on, on an almost subconscious level, it upsets me. But as of um, other things too, is that I think the movie thinks it's too smart for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the way characters talk. And I know people love that Coen's brothers dialogue. But it doesn't have that relatability aspect that something like Fargo has, or The Big Lebowski, or Our uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. It, it doesn't have that because it this because prior to this, their biggest film or most noteworthy would be Raising Arizona. That was kind yeah. of their biggest one because Barton Fink is a a cult favorite. Um, and then I'd say the biggest reason why this film never took off is that title. That title, yeah. it's it's it sounds like a like the same reason why Rob found this on HBO back in the day. <laughs> um, that's it sounds like some weird crap. The, oh, the Hudsucker proxy. It's like ew. I don't want to see that. Like imagine like, it's like date. <laughs> it's date night in nineteen ninety four. You're like, honey, what do you want to go see? The Hudsucker proxy. I'm not. I'm not being seen coming out of that. But no, it's a Tim Robbins. It's Tim Robbins and Jennifer Jason Lee, and they're doing their thing, and he's he's a businessman. Do I have to get a vaccine for that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Someone could be smoking a doobie. Will they be smoking the hashish in the theater? Um, yeah, I think that title killed this movie on a marketing level. 
And um, the content of the movie is fine. The kind of story level, it's very, very been there, done that. But I think that works to the movie's benefit. But I think even Jennifer Jason Lee, like, oh my god, her performance is dialed up so far. It's like oh. I get it. She's fast talking. I get it. And it's just again, someone needed to tell her to calm it down, or maybe the directors never, never instructed her properly. I know Rob probably has the hots for her in that perspective, but because you uh, know, you know what she does in this movie. Okay, smokes Rob, a cigarette. <laughs> okay, yes, I, I know, Rob. I, I, we said that on this podcast before. We are a very pro smoking podcast. If we ever get Marlboro to to like sponsor us, we would do it in a heartbeat. <laughs> Yeah, of all the things that we haven't been canceled for. <laughs> yes. Remember, ladies, if you do smoke near Rob, hide the cigarettes from your cat because we know what he likes to feed them. <laughs> no, all the ladies should smoke the cigarettes. As I, I don't know why. Uh, maybe I need some regression therapy to figure out why, but that is that is an attractive feature in a woman. <laughs> oh, man, folks, if we're not canceled for everything else we've said before, that might be the thing that cancels us. Rob's. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, oh god, what's the movie? Oh god, what movie is it? There's a movie where oh my god, I can see the guy. Oh my god, it's gonna drive me nuts. And there's a sub, there's a subplot where they're at. He's teaching two like nerdy dweeby guys how to like interact with women, mm-hmm. and he's like, you see that woman there fidgeting with her hands, and he's and they're like, yeah. It's like she used to smoke and she just quit. Now she has like an oral fixation that she needs to like. Oh god, she needs to like fill. If you oh, get this my sounds drift. familiar, but I can't place it either. I can see the clip, but I can't think of the movie. Okay. I think it's Richard Jenkins, maybe? I think he's the old guy, and he's instructing the two young guys. Yeah, I think, and that's what it is, and it's like, oh, clearly, or oral fixation. Mm-hmm. I think that, I don't know, if, we don't know what Rob does in his spare time, but uh, I think <laughs> I think subconsciously we figured out why he finds smoking attractive in women. <laughs> not judging. Much like Barry, we're not judging. I don't know. I'll leave it up to the uh, the regression therapist if that ever happens. There you go. <laughs> oh, geez. So I, I do want to say, because um, you brought it up with um, uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh's performance and the fast talk and stuff. W- one of my issues, not just with movies and media, but I would say with life in general, is that everybody talks way too fucking slow. This oh, movie is the perfect speed for a lot of the dialogue. It could even be faster in some points, I think. I love how quick this this is, you know? And and I think, you know, that's something that I always love when people talk fast. And even, I think, back when this podcast started, I edited an episode, and Zach's like, you need spaces between sentences, Rob. And I was like, no, you need as much information as fast as possible. But, yep. oh, I love the speed of this movie, especially Jennifer Jason Leigh. But you're, you're absolutely right. It is dialed up to 1,100 in a lot of those scenes. Go Eagles! <laughs> What's the months? Holy moly. And is this guy from Chumpsville? Ha, I even pulled the old mother routine. Adnoids. Lumbago. That gag's got whiskers on it. I'm telling you, Smitty, the motor pod sucker's up to something. Hey, what's a six-letter word for an affliction of the hypothalamus? Yeah. And it's a cinch. Goiter, it's a cinch. This guy isn't in on it. Oh, she's right here. How much time to make the late final? Chief. Hiya, Chief. Just the person I wanted to apologize to. About seven minutes. Yeah, I was all wet about your idea, man. Well, thanks for being so generous. It is human, and you are divine. No, no, he's no faker. He's 100% real McCoy. Beware of imitations. Genuine article. The guy's a real moron. As in a five-letter word for imbecile. 
Oh, as pure a specimen as I've ever run across. Okay, fortunately, the August doesn't make me an expert, then my name is Amy Archer, and I never won the Pulitzer Prize in 1957. My, oh, my series on the reunited triplets. Well, come on down here, Hammerhead, and I'll show it to you. Uh, Amy, that's a three-letter word for a flightless bird. Not now, Morris. I'm busy. That's right. I said Hammerhead is in a ten-letter word for a small, bullying, self-important newspaper man. New, who couldn't find that's GNU, couldn't find the Empire State Building with a compass, a roadmap, and a native guide. Or is it emu? And that's just potato, Smitty. Here comes the gravy. The chump really likes me. A muncy girl. Better off falling for a rattlesnake. I'm telling you, this guy's just a patsy, and I'm going to find out what for. There's a real story here, Smitty. Some kind of plot, a setup, a cabala. Oh, and say, did I tell you? He didn't offer you money. A saw buck. And smackers. Let's grab a highball. Oh, no, they'll bond. Yeah. Copy! All right, I figured out the movie. It's Hall Pass with Jason Sudeikis and... Uh, oh! Oh, wow! I've I saw that once a long time yep. ago, and yep. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> yeah, it's that's the movie. That's and that's yep. Very vulnerable. She just quit cigarettes. How do you know? Well, she can't take her eyes off the smokers over there. Well, how do you know those aren't her friends? Come on, Coakley, give me a break. Well, that might be plausible if her lips weren't shaking. And her fingernails weren't chewed down to the nub. And that bag, man, that's a little big to be bringing into a club. Unless she needs room for a $5 foot long. So you got a woman who quit smoking. Right. She's tense. She's hungry. And it all adds up to what? That woman needs something in her mouth. Get it up, my boy. Let's go. Yep. Okay, okay. Right on. <laughs> All right. One thing I do have to point out though, that uh, Rob said he found this on HBO back in the day. Mm-hmm. In my in my research for this movie, I typed it into Google and it gave me all the show times of it being on HBO for the next week. Oh wow. H- okay. HBO plays it a lot still. Yeah, I I know it's on HBO Go and I, you know, throw it on there every once in a while because I watch this movie so frequently. <laughs> you know why, Rob? Because I love it. Or why 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 it's on uh, HBO all the time? Oh, because they got they got a pad their time. Well, sure, sure you got pad <laughs> schedule. Yeah. but no, because this is a Warner Brothers film. Oh, and HBO okay. and Warner and Warner Brothers are part of the same company. Sure. Okay. So it's content that's in house. They don't have to pay for. Perfect. Good. I mean, I'm I'm glad it's on there. There's there's been times where I've been like looking through the list of movies on HBO Go, and I'll just see this and watch it. <laughs> Oh, it's fantastic. I love this movie, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> in case you couldn't tell, folks. He loves this movie. He loves it when Jennifer Jason Lee smokes a cigarette. So I, I want to get a little further into, I think, why I've come to love this. Because this movie, uh, I guess a, another peek behind the curtain is one of the things that I was wanting to discuss for this series, um, but we're not going to get to this time around, is Tim Burton's Big Fish. This movie and Big Fish are very much both romance movies. I would say Big Fish is way more of a romance than than this movie is but i i absolutely love both of them but i i knew i couldn't pick both of this and big fish because they fall into the same category at least in terms of how i think about them both movies and i want to focus on this of course i would consider to be kind of a more modern version and yeah i know modern in air quotes because this movie came out in 94 of a fairy tale this movie is very fantastical and and fairy tale-esque to me and I don't think I've seen a lot of movies or we get a lot of movies that kind of fall into that category. 
you know, I'm not saying it's a, it's a retelling of a fairy tale. Like, what, isn't there, like, a new Hansel and Gretel movie coming out that's supposed to be, like, real creepy and whatnot? I'm not sure. talking about that. I'm talking about these kind of stories that have these fantastical elements. You know, like, I'm, I'm thinking of especially the ending of the Hudsucker Proxy, where they stop time. And, you know, he, he's, he's able to, Tim Robbins is able to survive his fall off the skyscraper because um, old man Moses, like, stops the clock from running and it freezes time. It is very fantastical. Uh, is fairy tale the white, right way to describe it? Did you get that kind of sense from this film? It feels very surreal at moments. Again, yeah. the, ar- the architecture playing a big part of that. It's it's a world that doesn't... It, it feels like it might exist. Like It feels like it, it has one foot in reality and one foot in some other universe. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like you said, the fact that when we have Mr. Hudsucker jump out the window and he, like he's about to hit the woman and child, he like kind of like moves, like he waves his fingers, <laughs> he goes slightly to the left. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it has those fantastic elements. Sure, I know what you're coming from with that. I I whether it's a modern day fairy tale, I don't know if I go that far. Okay. But it certainly it has its foot in reality in a surreal world at once. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it because it, it does have that on the surface level, which I really love. But after watching this movie so many times, I really like some of the, I don't know if thematic is the right word, but maybe more symbolic or metaphorical elements that just kind of pad my feeling of that of that fairy tale. And, and surreal is a good way to put it. Like when um, wearing Hudsucker at the opening, he jumps out of the building and he commits suicide. And, you know, we don't see him splattered on the ground. We get the shot from the ground up. And there's a fat lady screaming. And it's like, oh, that's the fat lady singing. Like, that's the end of his Mm -hmm. life. And then the whole fact about how Tim Robbins is able to survive at the end, the deus ex machida is a god in a machine. Like, it's it's very almost literal, but it's subjects at the same time. And I, I usually I feel like this might be another reason why it's almost kind of like sometimes I don't. I don't expect that I would love this movie as much as I do because I think in maybe if that happened more in a more recent film, you know, maybe come out this year, a few years in the past, I would think that's a little more pretentious. But this movie yes. really pulls it off for me. Yeah, I think pretentious is the, the right word to describe this film. I, I think that's you say the reason that about why the I did. Coen brothers? Oh, you say they're yeah. Pretentious? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I would well, agree. But that's the problem. Is that, okay, not the problem with them, though, but it's that, like, people love them for their pretentiousness because that's what Fargo is. That's what Big Lebowski to a lesser extent because that's nah. – Big Lebowski, when it was made, wasn't, I don't think, designed to be pretentious, but over time, it's got that following. Oh, yeah. And pretty much every film they, like, even, like, what was the last film they made? Or I think it was their last film, Hail Caesar, where it's just, like, it's nothing. And it's, like, there's no substance to it. It's just them doing what they want. It's a very self-indulgent movie. Mm. And they they do that every once in a while. They're they're one of those ones, I think, I do one for me, one for the, like, one for, like, profitability. Because, again, they, they got their thing for No Country for Old Men. And I would imagine they made one of the most iconic villains in the last probably thirty years with uh, Javier Bardem mm-hmm. in the in the uh, the well, God the the air compressor tank weapon. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. I, they're they're very good filmmakers, but like something like Inside Llewellyn Davis. I remember watching that, being like, "Oh, good lord!" Like these <laughs> guys. That that's the first film in history to be made by directors that literally have their head up their own asses. And it's like, folks, it's just a movie about a guy who sings that's like having difficult times. It's it's not profound. You can like it, but it's not revolutionary in any way. And it's John John Goodman singing in the back of like a car, just like yelling. That that does not make excellent cinema. 
Sure. Um, yeah, that's the thing with this movie as I was watching it. Cause again, for the first hour, hour 15, I was really on board with it. I was, mm-hmm. and I'm like, wow, like where has this movie been? It really deserves a lot more. And it does. Like you said, even though <clears throat> it's also inspired, it, it pulls from a lot of things. Like even like uh, Brazil, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Yeah. There's a lot of that in here. Um, but again, a lot of it too, is just, it's, it's odd. And I don't know. I'm surprised it has not grown a much larger following. Like I get, I get why this didn't work in '94, and it's weird. This film feels ahead of its time, yet it also, I get the, it just feels like it's grounded in the mid '90s. Mm. Okay, yeah, I, I see what you're saying because it has that aesthetic of like of, of what films were becoming in the early '90s. Like again, it clearly it borrows from the the Keaton Batman aesthetic, the mm. Dick Tracy. The, there's another one in there that I'm forgetting. A Rocketeer. It has that very specific just set design that unless you have a Batman that sugarcoats it, there's a reason why things like the Rocketeer and Dick Tracy bomb. I think there's something inherently jarring about Art Deco that's ubiquitous. Yep. And I think audiences don't like that. And I think that's why this film, even to this day, has not got the following that it's it deserves i guess it it deserves it deserves a lot more following than just kind of like a niche film because i don't even think this is a cult film i think it's just kind of you have to really want to go through the coen brothers entire canon to ever discover this because they do have so many much more easily digestible films like Mm. we've already stated yeah yeah and it's interesting, you know, because I love this movie so much. I'm not really keen on any of the other Coen Brothers movies. Of course, I haven't seen all of them. But, you know, like uh, Big Lebowski, I'm all right with. Fargo, I'm all right with. I guess uh, I like The Lady Killers. Um, but I, I would say... like <laughs> that's, that's considered their worst film. I know, I liked it, though. <laughs> but I would say it's this, and then, you know, you take like a, a huge pause. And then I'd probably say Burn After Reading is the next one I like. Oh, that's another pretentious film. Oh, that's very pretentious. But I, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Burn After Reading. I think we've talked about it years ago now, but the I think we talked about the best part of that movie is just J.K. Simmons sitting at a desk going, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? <laughs> I, I don't remember. I have a copy of that movie somewhere. I have no idea where it is. But I can still hear J.K. Simmons being like, what the fuck, Bill? You're a Mormon. It's like... <laughs> Yeah, doesn't I think that movie ends with um what Jake they go back to J.K. Simmons and the the FBI or whatever agents are like we have no idea what's going on and J.K. Simmons shakes his head looks down and go well this turned out to be a clusterfuck <laughs> exactly that's yeah okay so the gym manager is dead yes sir the body is uh that's gone sir okay um uh, but there was a um snag what well. Um, this uh, analyst Cox was attacking the gym guy. Um, it was in broad daylight on the street. Our man uh, did not know what to do. Felt he had to step in. Yes. He um. He shot the analyst. He shot Cox. Good. Great. Is he dead? No, sir. He's in a coma. Um. They don't think he's going to make it. They, 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 don't, they don't think. They're pretty sure that he has no, uh, no brain function. Okay, okay. If he wakes up, we'll worry about it then. Jesus, what a clusterfuck. So that's, that's it then. No one else really knows anything. Um, no, it's fine. I guess the problem is they make well-made films. It's just you have to like that. 
in the Coen brothers outside of a few instances they don't their films don't make a lot of money like they are niche filmmakers i think that's probably the best way to describe them and mm. this is clearly them trying to make something of mass appeal and even when they try to do that it doesn't work for them yeah yep did you ever see a true grit did you ever see that one i i saw that once in theaters okay. and i i remember liking it i i have the i've seen the john wayne one more and it's it's a different movie. I know in that one, uh, the Matt Damon character, whoever the whoever the Matt Damon character's name lives, but I know I think that was Scott Glenn. I could be wrong. And the John mm. Wayne one dies, and that's the only thing I remember from it. Um, it's it's fine. Yeah, at okay. the end of the day, that movie will only be remembered as the launching pad of Haley Steinfeld. That oh that's, okay, that's the only thing that movie will ever be remembered for. It's it's, it's one of those movies that it's fine. It's good, but there's nothing memorable about it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Jeff Bridges, okay. Jeff Bridges. It was when Jeff Bridges was having his like renaissance when he was doing. Um, oh God, he he was becoming more of the like he went from being Jeff Bridges the actor to Jeff Bridges the dude. Gotcha. <laughs> where he where everything Jeff Bridges. I think he. Oh God, what was the movie with Jeff Bridges and he plays the dude? Um, like he where he's the guitar player that I think is going blind or something, and he's oh, a hippie. Yeah. I know what you and mean, then, but I don't remember and, it. And then that was the same time frame he did Tron Legacy where he's playing the dude. It became a very similar thing to like Robert Downey Jr. and Kevin Spacey where it's like their on-screen persona starts to blend into who they are as a person. Mm-hmm. Whether that's intentional or not is anyone's guess. Um, but yeah, that yeah, True Grit. Yeah, True Grit. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah, I don't, I don't know fine. if... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that I feel the same way. And I don't know if we'll ever get to another one because I'm looking at their filmography and I'm like, there's nothing else I think that would really be worthy of us discussing, you know? Have you, have you seen A Serious Man? No, I've only ever heard of it. I watched that, it has to be 10 years ago now. And I remember really liking it. I've always wanted to rewatch it, but I've never gotten around to it. I remember liking that. It was, cause that was different. Okay. It was, it's, it's odd, but it's different. Um, that always, whenever I heard about it, it just made me think of the, um, what is it? The the Michael Douglas movie? Isn't it f- like Falling Down or Fallen or something like that? Where he goes crazy and like kills a bunch of people or something? You know what I'm I talking about? Think, I don't think... I, I, I honestly don't know. I remember at one point thinking a serious man. Someone's like beating the main character's head against the chalkboard. And I think that's literally the only thing I remember about it. I remember I liked, okay. I liked it. I remember that very specific moment. Other than that, I have no memory of what happens in the rest of the film. <laughs> it's a hallmark of a great film right there. <laughs> that's the problem. Is that, like, that's how most of their films kind of like – I get Fargo. Because Fargo is clearly an attempt at trying to do Pulp Fiction. Sure. It's clearly it, – it's modeled after Pulp Fiction. But it's, it's Pulp Fiction – where Quentin Tarantino was clever enough to be like, oh, I'm going to make a three-way crime caper story. But if I make them three separate narratives, it's going to be not that it's boring, mm-hmm. but it's like been there, done that. So I'm going to do a nonlinear narrative to make and then make it all weave interlace perfectly. And people, there's stuff to always go back and watch in that movie. Um, Fargo is fine, but if you've seen it once, you've seen it a million times. There's nothing to glean from it unless you really just, it clicks with you as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember even oh god i think we watched i remember in when i was in college in film studies we did significant cinema directors and we had a coen's brothers night 
And I remember the professor really had a hard time. Like she remembers her asking the class because like that was one. They were one of the filmmakers that everybody kind of knew. It wasn't like something more obscure. Like um, oh god, I gotta go through the syllabus now and, and, and just try to figure <laughs> out like what one. That's it's god. It's been so many years. Um, but I remember her like asking the class like, what should we watch, and the biggest one being like we should watch the Big Lebowski or No Country for Old Men. And she's like, you've all seen those movies. Why do you want to watch the same thing again? And and I think we eventually decided on Fargo because it was the one that was the most easily digestible, but no one had seen. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that that's long before the TV show started. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think Fargo's it's it's their Pulp Fiction that like if you if you want to show somebody a Pulp I'm sorry a Coen's Brothers film that's the one you give because it's a crowd pleaser it's it has the goofiness it has the oddity. Um, it has William H. Macy doing the thing that he would go on to do for the next 30 years of his career. <laughs> yep. Um, you got Steve Buscemi doing what he would do for the next how many 20 years. And I think it's no accident they cast him based on what he did in uh, Pulp Fiction, considering that's the exact same character, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the the big brute dumb guy who's the foreigner. And, um, and Francis, because what? Francis McDormand won an Oscar for that. Right? I think so. Yeah, I believe. I believe yeah. so. And again, it's it's a cute performance, but it's not an Oscar caliber performance. It's her just doing an accent. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm that, so glad you bring so up the weird. Pulp Fiction. Oh, definitely. I'm glad you bring up the Pulp Fiction thing because I remember thinking that exact same thing when I saw Fargo. Like when it's Steve Buscemi and, like you said, the foreign guy as the as the hitman or the kidnappers or whatever. I think it's Peter Stormare, who's sure. the who's the other guy, um, who has who has the great intro scene in uh, John Wick too. Um, but it's just like I saw that and it's banter as they're driving in a car to like go commit a crime. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so clearly Pulp Fiction. And guess what? Audiences ate it up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've never seen the TV show and I have no interest to see the TV show. I've been told it's really good, but it's yes. always been by people who've never seen the movie. Oh, OK. I've been told it's good for a long time. I think ever since it came on and and I'm just like, you know, as I usually say, is it over yet? I won't watch it till it's over. <laughs> Life is too short to watch TV shows based on movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Watch the movie, move on to something else. Okay. Well, this was our Coen Brothers discussion since we won't cover any of their movies. So now we can go back to the Hudsucker proxy. proxy. Yes. Focus in on the uh, the the movie I love. So um, I guess a little bit of background. Something that you know, I when I first found this and fell in love with it, you know, I, I had heard of the Coen Brothers, but I was not familiar with. The other person that has a big part of this movie, Sam Raimi. Of course, now I'm very much more uh, versed on Sam Raimi. Um, but it still kind of blows me away that when you talk about Sam Raimi to anyone, you know, they're going to say Evil Dead, I would imagine. And it just baffles me that, you know, he helped, he co-wrote this movie with them. And he was the second unit director. And I, I, I wouldn't say I hold Sam Raimi in, you know, high regard personally. I got a lot of respect for him. But that still always just sounds weird to me when I think about it, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because uh, that's another part of, like, uh, Hollywood, just the uh, the cronyism of the business. Yes. Is that, like, everybody, like, I remember, like, you read stories now more, like, in retrospect of, like, when Sam Raimi got Spider-Man. And you're like, oh, my God, Sony, like, Sony was really audacious with what they were doing at the time. Because like uh, to hire someone like Sam Raimi, it's like Sam Raimi was always around. Sure. And yes, they, they, but at the time in like nineteen like ninety nine when they hired him, 
they're really it's not like today where you have Brett Ratner and JJ Abrams. You mm-hmm. do not have that just like shill that's just gonna do everything. Like so like these guys did have a voice. And at that point, Raimi had been been in the business for almost 20 years. So it was like, okay. But again, that's the thing, is everybody knows everybody. Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely. And it it, it 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 that's something that I definitely have cooled off on. Like I used to love reading those stories uh more for me in particular musicians where it's like you hear things where it's like oh uh like the famous one that i think of when i think of you know i reading that the cohen brothers lived with sam raimi in the mid 80s and they were working on this film now to me it's just like oh of course of course all these people know each other it's just nepotism galore but it used to be cool to me like there's a great story about how um Maynard, the guy who sings for Tool, was almost the singer for Rage Against the Machine because he was great friends with Tom Morello. And it's just like, now it's just like, of course. That's how all these people get famous. They make each other famous. And I guess it still is a cool little factoid, but it's just like almost expected at this point. Yeah, it, it's, it was different then because I guess, it, it, I don't know, it's, it's, it doesn't bother me. It's kind of like you were saying, the fact he was doing Second Unit on this, this was a big, big Hollywood production in the mm-hmm. sense compared to what they were doing. It wasn't evil dead in the shack in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So it makes sense. That's how it's like Sam Raimi meets, um, uh, Joel silver, who was the producer on this and Joel silver being one of the biggest people on the face of the earth in that time frame. It would make sense. Like he would eventually go to Sony and be like, talk to this guy. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, that's, uh, it's, when I saw his name and of course, Bruce Campbell in this made perfect sense. And I'm like, wait, I'm like, wait, why is Bruce Campbell in this? <laughs> yeah. um, this? This was back before anybody knew who Bruce Campbell was. This is before he could charge like $500 for an autograph. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, you see the word Raimi in the credits. You're like, well, of course he's in here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you bring up that he, he charges for autographs because I don't know if if Zach remembers this or even told him, but I have some blurry pictures of Bruce <laughs> yes. Campbell from a yep. distance yep. when we tried to take pictures of him without getting in line at a Philadelphia Comic-Con back in the day. <laughs> I remember that. I remember, I remember Rob showed me the pictures where like, there was like a guy holding up like a giant piece of cardboard that said like no pictures. <laughs> yeah, someone someone was trying to block us and I think we got like one grainy picture or blurry picture of his full face and the other is just like his sideburns or something. Yep. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And that's, Oh yeah. And, and Bruce Campbell is one of those people that really like, I, I, everyone's like, Oh, he's such a good sport when he interacts with the fans. And I'm like, if you're making someone pay $500 to have to sign a picture of your face, you better be nice to them. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I don't get that thing. It's like, Oh, they're so nice. I'm like, if I'm literally paying somebody, Five hundred dollars for like sixty seconds of their time. It like, better be a on. good experience. It yeah. better be a great experience. And this, but this was before then, though, where he was. He I don't want. I don't want to say has been because he was a nobody. He was the guy who made a bunch of schlocky horror films in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was it. He always was like his description. I think that's the name of like the title of one of his autobiographies. Is that <laughs> like the most famous B actor in the world? Sure. And then and then he did what suits. And he became kind of like the 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 old Navy SEAL, the retired Navy SEAL. It might have been Susan. It might have been Burn Notice. Burn Notice. Thank you, Burn Notice. And that's where he really yeah, like, okay. he, had, he had a steady gig. And that's when he could like when he wasn't shooting that he'd go to all the conventions and he'd start like hyping things. He'd be like, "Oh, we're making Evil Dead Four, but I want no parts of it. We're making Evil Dead Four, but I'm not going to be in it." <laughs> it was it was a strange thing. Why are you hyping something up that nobody wants? Like, why would anybody want Evil Dead Four without Bruce Campbell? And it was the yeah. oddest thing that he was hyping that up. 
he still does that to this day. I read an article in the last two weeks where he was like, oh, because Sam's finally like written a script for like Evil Dead 4. Never mind, there's been a script for Evil Dead 4 for 30 years now that we don't talk about. Well, <laughs> numerous scripts. But I'm not going to be in it. I'm retired. But I'd always be open to be open to like doing one final appearance. I'm like, kill me. Kill does, me. Does, he have a, does Bruce Campbell have a cameo in the 2013 Evil Dead? I never saw that. Yeah, he has a okay, cameo. Of course, but of but it's 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 uh, it's a cameo, but it's it's very jarring and it's great for that reason. Okay. okay. He's not in the film, but at, at the end of the credits, it's a sn- it's not even a snap zoom. It's like a weird sort of like it's an in-camera shot. And it's him at like like Oh my god, like swing his neck and, and he stops and the camera like focuses on his profile of his head and he goes, Groovy. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. Oh gee, that sounds it's, bonkers. <laughs> it's it's a it's a non sequitur. It's not in the film. It's not like connected to the narrative of the film at all. Okay. Um we might have to I don't want to go too far into that though, but there was apparently a I've read there was a cameo shot of him in person. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't release that. Oh, okay, okay. But that's a, that's a conversation for another day. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Right on. So yeah, yeah. Bruce Campbell's in this. Um, like we said, for Tim thirty Robbins, seconds. Yeah, yeah. For thirty seconds, Jen- He's Smitty. Uh, and then uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Tim Robbins. We said uh, Paul Newman's in this. I love Paul Newman in this movie. You know, I think I haven't seen a lot of Paul Newman stuff, but you know, like Cool Hand Luke, I saw back in the day, and I guess one of the ones he's better known for. Um, but I, I think it goes without saying, I can think all the performances in this are great. Um, but I guess it's time for a plot breakdown because I think as we've set up, no one knows what this movie is, right? (laughs) No, Rob. So, uh, the name being as strange as it is, the Hudsucker Proxy is actually a pretty good encapsulation of what the movie entails. So as we said, I think already, uh, the movie begins with uh, a boardroom meeting of Hudsucker Industries and one of the board members, I would imagine the, the treasurer, the accountant in some ex- some extent, CFO possibly, is talking about how well the company's doing. And he has the great line, sub-franchising? Don't talk to me about sub-franchising. We're making so much money in sub-franchising that it isn't even funny. One of the only times I'm okay with using the same word in three consecutive sentences. Sub-franchising. Don't talk to me about sub-franchising. We're making so much money in sub-franchising, it isn't even funny. But after they say that the company is doing so well, the head of the company stands up on the boardroom table, gets a running start, and jumps out of the window to his death. And as soon as this happens, like I think it's, uh, at least as I've gotten from the movie, minutes after he's dead on the sidewalk... Paul Newman, as the right-hand man of the company, says, well, what do we do about his stock? And it turns out that as per the company bylaws, all of wearing Hudsucker's stock is going to go on the common market come January 1st, in about a month. And they hatch the plan to pick someone to now be the new head of the company that's going to do so poorly at it, it's going to depress the stock so that they can buy it for cheap and retain control of the company. But of course... They get Tim Robbins as the, you know, fresh out of college, looking for work type of guy to be the dunce to head this company. He actually ends up making the company stronger than ever. And it kind of becomes that that boardroom or company-esque uh, vying for power where Paul Newman's the bad guy, I guess, trying to take down Tim Robbins to some extent. Tim Robbins invents the hula hoop. 
the Frisbee a little later on. He falls in love with Jennifer Jason Leigh, uh, falls out of love with her, gets angry at her, all that stuff. I think things we'll discuss more in detail. But like I said, that's what they're really looking for. This company needs a proxy to be the head of Hudsucker Industries. So I guess once again on the name, it makes sense. Yes, if you just say the name to people, it's going to turn them off on it. But once you know what the movie's about, it actually fits very well, for better or for worse, I would say. <laughs> Okay, I'm glad Rob's happy about that title because it was made explicitly for him. Yeah, um, the Coens got the word. The Coens got word in 1992. They're like, "There's this kid that's just born. We're gonna make this movie for him." <laughs> and and two years later, it was finished. But I have to ask you, Rob, putting on your taking off your Rob hat and putting sure. on your uh, practical person hat. I'm not sure how dusty it is or how many holes it might have. If you're naming this for mass audiences, can you think of a better title for this or a more mm-hmm. A mass appeal title for this. I I was definitely thinking about that. I feel, I I feel like I was trying to think of something. I couldn't come up with any particular name, but I think something business oriented. You know, like like a like battle in business or something like that. I I agree with you. I should say this. You know, this if this was for mass audiences, that name should never be attached. But. I definitely think still something to play up that, you know, that business aspect of it, because it's not you can't focus too much on the romance of it, because that is kind of the subplot of this movie. Uh, Like I said, I couldn't think of anything great, but it would have to be that kind of business orientation. I was thinking for sure. Did you have one? No, no, I, I was thinking of it though, but I didn't put too much thought into that because I'm like, I, 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 especially for 1994, I don't know what what buzzwords would have appealed oh, to people point. of that time period. I obviously, what 26 years later, a lot has changed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't answer that question. But the thing about the story though of this is that, like, like I said, I told you, I didn't, even, I don't even mind the romance. It's the idea that the film shifts gears thematically we go from it being a story of a guy being set up to be a patsy mm-hmm. and then we shift gears into a guy being like power hungry and not abusing his power but he's kind of like reveling in it and he loses sight of what he once was yeah his ego blows up yeah and that's the weird things it becomes a very very it goes from being a very mechanical film like even like we have the scenes in the boardroom and we have the the mail room. We're having the straight out of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, where he's ca- pushing the mail cart and he's being like giving his uh, what indoctrination. What we call it? What initial oh, lesson? Orientation. Yeah. Orientation. Thank you. And we then like slowly we transition to like okay, Jennifer Jason Lee writes the story about him. Everybody calls him an imbecile. He's not an imbecile. And then we kind of just go to him now. Oh, he he does he, he has the circle on the little piece of uh, note paper. And yep. okay, and then all of a sudden he made a hula hoop and he's like insanely wealthy and not wealthy, but he's insanely popular and noteworthy. And I guess the one thing that really kind of drove me nuts is that we have I, I forget his name. He was um their father on Frasier. He was uh Kelsey Grammer and oh. David High Pierce's I his name escapes me. Yeah, he's um the, you're talking about the uh in the movie, the character he plays is the uh head of the newspaper, the chief yes. editor or whatever. He's right? head he's off brand Perry White. Yes, John Mahoney. And, yes, John Mahoney, thank you. Tip of my tongue. And we have a big thing where he's talking to all the reporters being like, why can't anybody get me a story on this guy? Why doesn't anybody know where he, where he comes from? I want something. Give me facts. The Einstein of enterprise. The Edison of industry. The billion-dollar cranium. 
My dear man. I thought one of you mugs was giving me a story on him. Don't you lame brain. Facts, figures, charts. They never sold a newspaper. I read this morning's edition of the Argus. Let me tell you something. I'd wrap a fish in it. I'd use it as kindling. Hell, I'd even train my poodle on it if he wasn't a French poodle and more partial to the pages of Paris Soir, but I sure wouldn't shout out a herder and Nicola Reed to that blame thing. Come on, Chief, give us a break. Sure, Tibbs. Take a break. Go to Florida. Lie in the sun. Wait for coconut to drop. File a story on it. It'd be more of a grab it than your piece on the commie grain surplus. The human angle. That's what sells papers. We need a front page with a heart, and the whole idea of the idea, man, idea can put it there. Look, Chief, if we had more access... Yeah, and if a frog had wings, it wouldn't bump his ass or hoppin'. I don't want excuses, I want results. I want to know what makes the idea man tick. Where's he from? Where's he going? I want to know everything about this guy. Has he got a girl? Has he got parents? Everybody has parents. All right. How many? And then, like, about, what, 30 minutes later, we have Tim Robbins giving a press conference... And it's like, wait, that was Jennifer Jason Lee's entire character was the fact that she had exclusive access to him. And now that entire subplot just disappeared. Or not that it disappeared, sure. but it, dis- it dissipates into just like, oh. I, and she just goes from being, because again, we have the whole thing of her, like him kind of inadvertently insulting her. It's like, oh, she's probably some hag that, that has to get her jollies by insulting big, powerful men. She slaps mm-hmm. him. And then we go to... Then we really don't see her again in the film until they go to the part, the, the stock investors party. Yep. And again, he kisses her for good luck. And obviously, his luck does do a complete 180 where he he does the whole thing with the hula hoop. We see the success of that. And then she kind of isn't in the movie for the longest time. It's not until she eventually, sh- like, she sees him in his office where he's getting his nails filed and he's sitting there like, getting the massage or whatever it was going on. And she's like, look what you've become. And that's yep. kind of it. And then she goes back to off-brand Daily Planet, and it's like, oh, Bruce Campbell stole your story. And it's like, wait, when? Like, it feels like her entire subplot, like the middle of it, was just excised out of the movie. Mm, and I'm like, uh, okay. She, and that's where I'm like, wait, like, where, where is this going? Like, you need that part because again, I know she sees him what with Jaja Gabor or off-brand <laughs> Jaja Gabor, and she's like, okay, she's like, like disappointed and saddened. And I'm like, okay. Like, where was the part where they had their falling out? Like, we see them getting, not getting together, but we see, we see the romance blossoming. And then we cut to, she's dejected. And I just feel like either that was rushed on a story level, or there's something missing that was filmed. Okay, I, I could def I see exactly what you're saying about the stuff that's missing. You know, and of course, uh, I'm sure that what I'm about to say, some of my own bias and love for this movie, you know, helps me rationalize it. But... You know, I've always kind of taken it as because um, she when she's in the uh, clock tower or, you know, the, the middle part, I guess, of the Hudsucker building when she's snooping around she, and she talks to Moses in the clock room. That's when she gets the story that, you know, they only got Tim Robbins, uh, Norval Barnes to be the head of the company for the whole stock scam. And then she starts to try and push that, but the uh, the editor no longer wants that. He wants more of the like the schlub type of angle and and the you know the the dimwitted type of thing. And so her her kind of feelings towards it all change, and she kind of gets pushed out of the movie, end of the narrative, because she's not the one who wants to write the stuff that the editor wants anymore. Sure, but that should have been even more. Okay, in my own opinion that should have been more of a reason to give her more scenes with uh, Tim Robbins. 
mm-hmm. less of the oh, newsroom fair. stuff and more like that. Like, okay, maybe we have a moment where she goes, cause think about it, she needs a new angle for a story. So she goes snooping again for more information. And then she slowly starts to realize, Oh, this guy's a human being. Who's actually intelligent. Like I would have preferred the scene where Tim Robbins shares with Paul Newman, where he's like, Oh, I guess people called you an idiot. No, they, they, they thought I was pretty clever. I bet you flunked out of school. Actually, I was on the Dean's list. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred if that scene was written with her instead of Paul Newman. Because because that scene has no purpose. Like, yes, we're giving I'm sorry, it has no purpose with Paul Newman. Is that Paul Newman thinks he's an idiot through and through. There's no the Paul Newman character has no arc. You're from the basement, aren't you? And weren't blessed with much education. Well, I I am a college graduate. But you did not excel in your studies. Well, I, I, I made dean's list oh. at the Muncie College of Business Administration. Oh, wow. And your friends, they called you jerk, didn't they? Mm. Oh. Dope. Mm-mm. Dipstick. Oh. Lame brain. Oh. Schmo. Not even behind your back. No, as a matter of fact, they voted me most likely to succeed. You're fired. <laughs> Get your feet off my desk. Get out of my office. And leave your apron in the locker room. Sure. Because he's, he's, he's the just, bad guy. He's just bad guy, yeah. He's bad guy. So if you're going to have a moment where we have your protagonist kind of explain who he is and that he's not this imbecile, that should be something for Jennifer Jason Leigh to experience because it helps her character evolve and realize, oh, there's more to this guy than just the dim-witted image I've helped create in the media. That's that's why I feel. I feel like that scene probably would just swap out the characters. Oh, that that's an interesting take. Okay. Yeah, I, I could see that working for sure. That and that would give more depth to the romance aspect of it, and and the rest of the story and the char- like the the arc of um, Tim Robbins as Norville Barnes. Except that if you're making a movie and you've got Paul Newman, you're not going <laughs> to take out a scene with Paul Newman and replace Jennifer Jason Leigh, who at this point was more or less a nobody. Uh, that yes, absolutely. And if we replace Paul Newman in that scene, we would not get. The great uh, John Polito as Mr. Bumstead and the Bumstead contract, which is a little yeah, flourish yeah. in this movie that I absolutely love. When it, what they cut to uh, the the receptionist is constantly calling Paul Newman, and he's like, "Mr. Musburger, Mr. Bumstead's here to see you." He's getting impatient, and then when he falls out the window or the contract flies out the window, we get the cut to Mr. Bumstead, and he's like, "No more coffee." No more magazines. I want to see Musburger. Show me Musburger. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. The Bumstead contracts. No magazines. No coffee. Musburger. I want to see Musburger. Oh, did he jump out a window, too? This is the sort of stuff I did like about the movie. I did like how it. I guess it's creative and it's clever. I guess I don't. Want, I don't think I'm being harsh. harsh on this because I did no, enjoy you, it. You said you said already you enjoyed it, and you know uh, that's that's the best I could have hoped for. <laughs> yeah, for a movie called The Hudsucker Proxy. Exactly. Um, but even the even the little quick like side gags where we have like the single hem versus the double hem stitch oh. of, of, of the trousers. And it's like, yeah, that sort of stuff. Like, you know what? That's a cute little thing where it's like we see it ripping and we cut to hit Tim with the tailor being like, well, Mr. Mr. What's his name? Musburger. Musburger. Yeah. Mr. Musburger. I recommend a double stitch. And he's like, yeah, he's always smoking a cigar. Yeah. Because you want to line your pockets with the extra money. Then we see it rip, rip, rip. Then we cut back to the tailor. You know what? Mr. Musburger is such a nice man. I'll throw it in extra. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that that sort of stuff is neat. It's like, okay, that's a nice little flourish. It adds a mo- it gives the film some extra character. It defines Musburger as a character more. And it's done in a clever, coherent way. And I'm like, yes, that sort of stuff I can appreciate though. But like again, the gratuitous moments where we have him like after we have the scene of him, uh, I'm sorry, Tim Robbins, he's being interviewed like on the podium. And then we have scenes of him in the barber shop, and it's the exact same scene again of him being just like okay, he's starting to now become arrogant mm-hmm. in this power of position, this position of power. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Then we have the Jennifer Jason Lee part where he's in the where they go into his office, and it's like, and there's what the music, the entire or uh, what quartet there. Yeah, he and has all he has a, uh, like a, a string quartet. He's got someone doing uh, a sculpture of his head. He's yep. got the uh, the two women. I think one woman's doing his nails, and the other one has on like the hand vibrators to massage sure. his temples. And then there's the there's like the 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 fat Italian mafioso just sitting in the middle of the room yep. reading a newspaper as his muscle. Yep, and that sort of stuff. Like I get that though, but you got you, you should have cut out not cut out though, but like taken out a scene of him at the barber, and again given Jennifer Jason Lee something to do, give that character something to do. Sure, sure. With yeah, I, I see where you're, where you're coming from. That's what I feel because I, I feel if you argue, like, I don't have a problem with the film transition, transitioning from more of a again that business aspect to more of like okay, we're going to learn more about these characters. Mm-hmm. But you got to give me more. You can't just give me one character, especially one character that only has. Think about it, at that point, really in the entire film, the only character that has an arc that we see through and through. Is Tim Robbins and Jennifer Jason Leigh just were more given the bookends of her arc? Yeah, yeah, and uh, that that's a good point. When you say it that way, or when you know you describe it that way, it certainly, I, I think, to me, makes more sense for myself about why I'm kind of more okay with the romance because it's not so full frontal. It's more of just like <laughs> in the background for sure, which of sure. course is the uh, the right way to do romance for me. Um, until the next time we come back to Unexpected Love, we do Big Fish, then it's going to be like, how the hell do you like this movie? It's literally just like a 90-minute love letter. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, so I'm trying to think of other things that kind of stood out for me in this movie. Because it is, there, there's a lot going on. It's a very busy film. Yeah, I do. I like, I, I figured you would like the um, the little flourishes, because that's a big kind of thing why i like it as well you know all those little kind of scenes that don't really add to the plot like the the pants with uh paul newman you know and we get that cutaway and he's like why would anybody need a double stitch and then it goes back to him hanging out of the window cut to his pants ripping and then he goes damn (laughs) (laughs) i i wanted to know what you thought about um one of the scenes that's always been really interesting to me is when jennifer jason lay and tim robbins meet in like the diner but the entire meeting between them is narrated by the cab drivers on the other side of the diner. They got gas, Benny. Yeah. Tell me about it. Well, no kidding, Benny. I ain't got gas. You get the special? Far from it. Enter the dame. There's one in every story. Ten bucks says she's looking for a handout. 20 bucks says not here, she don't find one. She's looking for a mark. She finds him. She sits down. And orders a light lunch. How will she pay for this lunch? She looks through her purse. No money. The mark notices. He's not noticing, Benny. Maybe he's wise. 
You don't look wise. Plan two. Here come the waterworks. Yellowstone. Old Faithful. Hello, Niagara. He notices. She's distressed. He's concerned. She explains her predicament and... Enter the, the light lunch. She's got other problems, of course. There's illness in the family. Her mother needs an operation. Urgently. Adenoids. No, Benny. Lumbago. Oh, that gang's got whiskers on it. Uh-oh. He ain't biting, Benny. She's losing him, Lou. Maybe he's wise. He don't look wise. How does she pull this out? He's getting away. She better think fast. She isn't. She is! She's good, Benny. She's damn good, Lou. Can I get you boys anything else? Bromo. Bromo. And they're like, oh, she finds her mark. How does she get his attention? She's going for the sick ant? No, oh. Uh, adenoids? No, lumbago. And so that's always stood out to me as a very, maybe not unique, unique when I saw it for sure, but I think it's been done elsewhere now. You know, you're giving a very common setting in a film or some type of story, but you're having these non-existent characters explain it in kind of this, you know, comedic and Coen Brothers pretentious-esque way. I didn't take that as pretentious, though, because especially, I don't know, nowadays if that was done. But back in 94, I thought that was a clever framing device for the scene. Yeah. I, that sort of stuff I like. That, and I feel the film loses track of that as time goes on. It oh, gets so yeah. consumed with the narrative that it loses those little flourishes. And it's like, okay, why this... Again, why the Coen brothers became this big thing, you lose track of that after a while. And that's the sort of stuff that I wish they would go back to as filmmakers. Not just having all these actors in a movie just spouting their quick, witty dialogue. Because that's not unique anymore. Again, think of all the people now that do that, whether it be Tarantino, mm -hmm. Aaron Sorkin, the list goes on and on. Just quick-witted, fast-paced dialogue. That's not unique anymore. Yes. But having that sort of sequence where you have, like, you focus on Tim Roth, I'm sorry, you have the establishing shot of the two delivery men in the cafe or the, the or whatever you want to call it back in the 50s. Yeah. And you have them, and it, it, the, even the camera movement of that sequence. That's yeah. one thing people have to realize, too. This was before computers. You couldn't just sit there, type all this into a computer, and the camera would fly around the room. That actually involved coordination with a physical recording device. Mm -hmm. And that sort of stuff is neat. That it really is. The fact oh, that we yeah. have these two characters that really have no, that have no role in the film are narrating it kind of like – I was even trying to think while I was watching that. What kind of narration would that be considered? It's not omnipotent narration. But it's mm -hmm. what was it? Third person narration. Third person, yeah. Be and I think that's another reason why I really love it because um, when you watch that scene, you know it's just them talking. We get, of course, the the physical acting and whatnot from Tim Robbins and Jennifer Jason Leigh, but it's all described by these cab drivers with the framing device that they have gas. <laughs> yeah, and it, and. I love the fact that, you know, they describe it accurately in this in the logic of the movie, because later on, you know, they even do the whole thing. Like I said, they're like, oh, how, what's she saying? The sick mother, the sick relative, adenoids, lumbago. And then later on, when I think Jennifer Jason Leigh is talking to Bruce Campbell in the newsroom, it's like, oh, how'd you how'd you get him? Did you hit him with the adenoids? No, the lumbago. And it's like it, so it is that kind of third person versus um 
omniscient, at least the way we see it, because of course, in reality, I would assume the cab drivers can hear what they're saying, you know, Tim Robbins and her across the room or across the diner table. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was clever. That's the sort of stuff that you really, uh, you, you get why, you know, this film was a bust. People would watch this in Hollywood and be like, okay, this didn't work, but these guys have potential. Yeah, yeah. I, I also love that scene a lot. It, it's always stood out to me. I, I do. I like the way you put it. I wish we had more of that stuff throughout the entire movie, for sure. But it does become very arc-centric. Yeah, it becomes very conventional toward the end. As the film goes on, as the film advances, it becomes more and more conventional. Um, except for some things here and there. Obviously, the, 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 the freezing of time. No, that is very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, but except for that, those moments toward the end... For a nice thirty-minute chunk of the film, it does become kind of what you'd expect in a film like this. It become, like you said, very fairy tale esque. Very, I don't mean to say this in a negative way, but very conventional, very predictable sort of way. Sure, sure. Yeah, of of course, with the falling out, and you know, when Tim Robbins finds himself on New Year's Eve at the Beatnik Bar, and he's kind of he's drunk and he's he's just angry about everything that's happened, and it's all kind of like, okay, you know, this is the natural progression of this type of story. Sure. Yeah. So I I think uh, before we go, well, we might have passed it already, but I do want to talk about um, the beginning of the movie, the uh, the boardroom suicide wearing Hudsucker. Um, We'll have to talk about the great jokes that the buzz, the elevator man says, like as soon as (laughs) wearing Hudsucker dies. But um, in my research, I I found it really interesting um, and I dug a little deeper for it this time. But the the whole kind of opening scene, you know, the the suicide of wearing Hudsucker is very much inspired by and greatly mimics the real life suicide of Eli Black. And I don't know if you read about this or if you've heard of Eli Black, but he was the chairman, president, and CEO of the United Brands Company back in the seventies, which eventually became uh, the Chiquita brand. So Chiquita Bananas. If anybody, you know, is that still around? Do people know what Chiquita Bananas are? I am Chiquita Banana, and I'm here to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like if you think of bananas, everybody thinks of Dole these days. Yeah. I um, don't know if Chiquita's around. That's that's interesting. She might have either dissolved or just, they might have just retired her as a brand uh, mascot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. So before it was Chiquita, it was United Brands Company. And apparently when Eli Black was um, in uh, the head in charge of this company, in the mid-70s, things were not going well. The company had some difficulties staying solvent. And the I'm sure that all led to him committing suicide. Um, but uh, what I read is that it was supposedly in response to the uncovering of a one-and-a-quarter million dollar bribe that the company paid off to the, at the time, Honduran president for tax reductions on banana exports. That is a strange sentence. <laughs> I was just about to say that. And so this got uncovered. Um, he, he committed suicide before the story broke, but I think he knew well what was going on. And like I said, the trouble with keeping the company solvent, all of it um, kind of compounded. But he actually jumped out of his office window on the 44th floor of the Pan Am building in Manhattan, which we has actually come up on this podcast before in Gremlins, too, I believe, with Dick Miller, that scene where he's fighting the um, the Bat Gremlin, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so so this is, you know, like I said, not only inspired by, but it greatly mimics that as well. And uh, I don't, this movie doesn't really get into why wearing Hudsucker commits suicide. 
Um, I think it kind of does a little bit when we get to see him as an angel later on, but it's never explicit. But when I was reading this, I was kind of like, oh, wow, you know, this is just kind of uh, the thing that kicks off this movie is very much pulled from reality. And Eli Black, I'm not sure how well known that story is. It's probably, you know, something that's just a tidbit of history at this point in time. But uh, I thought it was crazy to read that about, you know, the the banana exports and the bribe and just being like, oh, wow, that's that's a great kind of storytelling device or maybe not storytelling, but um, how to start off a story, you know, find some inspiration and kind of blend something fun and exciting out of that. Um I guess that's a weird thing to say about a businessman's suicide, and especially for this kind of comedy film. Um, but I thought that was pretty neat. That's I didn't know that was based on a true thing. But yeah, the more you know. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, we have to talk about it. One of my favorite characters in the movie, Buzz the Elevator Man. Uh, another fast-talking character. I absolutely love it. Buzz is pretty minor. I guess he kind of becomes, you know, how they they get, uh, or Sidney Musburger gets the uh, the drop on Tim Robbins when he becomes successful. But I've always loved the fact that we have a character that rhymes for no reason. <laughs> uh, I guess when you're working as an elevator man, your job is so boring that you need to do something to spice it up. Yeah. And the way that he chooses to spice it up is like just moments, I think, after the news that wearing Hudsucker dies is revealed. He is just telling jokes about it. And my favorite one is that he says something like, uh, what is it? He says, when is the sidewalk fully dressed? When it's wearing Hudsucker. Who's the most liquid businessman on the street? Wearing Hudsucker. And it's it almost gets so grating as he's saying it so quickly. Hiya, buddy. My name's Buzz. I got the fuzz. I make the elevator do what she does. Hang it up to dry. What's your pleasure, buddy? 44. 44, the top brass floor. Say, buddy, what takes 50 years to get up to the top floor and 30 seconds to get down? Wearing Hudsucker. You get it, buddy? Say, buddy, Mr. Klein up to nine, Mrs. Dell, personnel, Mr. 1137. 36. Walk down. Ladies and gentlemen, please step to the rear. Here comes a gargantuan Mr. Greer. Buzz. Say, buddy, who's the most liquid businessman on the street? Wearing Hudsucker. <laughs> Say, buddy, when is the sidewalk fully dressed? When it's wearing Hudsucker. <laughs> you get it, buddy? It's a pun. It's a knee slapper. It's a play on Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. Is that a blue letter? Crape to muddy. Why didn't you tell a guy? Hold on, folks. We're expressed to the top floor. But uh, I just love that whole aspect. And the little touch later on when Tim Robbins runs into him on New Year's Eve... And Buzz is like, hey, Sidney Musburger says you stole that idea for the hula hoop from me. And it's in a crowd out on the street. I think is Buzz and Zaza are leaving some bar. And everybody else in the shot has like party hats on to celebrate um, New Year's Eve and, and the new year. But Buzz is wearing a more festive version of his elevator cap. Yes, I, I, I love that little touch. It's so great. I, I love the idea, and I guess, God, it's hard to imagine this nowadays, or even, God, for the last, like, probably 50 years, is that there was a point with elevators where you could actually have control over them. It wasn't yes. just a, com a very simple computer, like, a, a computer program written. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of having, like, an elevator where you can push a button, the doors close immediately. <laughs> the fact that, like, because I know there's a point where he lets um he lets Tim Robbins out to deliver the deliver the blue letter, and he's like, "All right," I, he says something, and then like, "Good luck, uh, buddy." 
<laughs> yeah. And then he walks out and he comes right back and he opens the doors and he's like, I forget whatever it says. He's like, uh, I forget the, you probably know the exact quote. And then he shuts the door again. And he disappears. I'm like, oh, that's great. You can never do that today. Cause once you push up, once you leave a floor, that's it for the elevator. You're not coming back up for at least another 10, 15 minutes. You yeah. can't return to a floor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's always, it's always good to see those, um, manual elevators, especially, you know, he's operating it and Tim Robbins is all like meek. He doesn't really know what to say. And he's going to the 44th floor and buzz keeps stopping to let more people on. And he's rhyming. And then what the, there's that great one where he's like, Mr. Something, and he's like, Mr. Clevin, floor 37, 36, walk down, you know, and all yep, that stuff. Yep. And then he sees that Tim Robbins has the blue letter, and he's like, oh, it's a blue letter, why don't you tell me? And he goes, express to the top floor, and he's able to just crank it to get to the top floor. And it's like, man, to be alive in those days when I could have yep. done something like that. <laughs> yep, you have actual control over an elevator. It's a, it was a beautiful, beautiful idea that the world wasn't ready for. Yeah, and now we live in an era where, you know, geez, the last few hotels I've been in, I think I've even stayed on like the fourth floor last time I was in Pittsburgh, and I felt like I was waiting 20 minutes for the elevator to get there. And there was at least six of them. <laughs> Hate it. <laughs> a lot of elevators, it's like, okay, uh, it's slow. Oh, God, tangent. I... I'm always used to elevators. Like you're your normal speed of elevator. And I remember once I went for my infamous, infamous internship interview at the sci-fi channel. So I went to 30 sure. Rockefeller Plaza and they have all different elevators for different like sections of the building. I remember I had to go to like the 88th floor. I had to go to a special elevator and the thing just flies. Like you can, oh. you, you feel <laughs> the, like the, just the forces on your body. It's almost like being on a, like a roller coaster. And I'm like, wow, what sort of magic? What kind of sorcery is this? Where's where's the the magician like <laughs> uh, in the basement that's conjuring up this magic to make this thing go that fast? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't know if Zach remembers. Do you remember my uh I, I think it was a long time ago, but I still I'll, I'll never forget. One of my favorite tidbits about elevators is that in the Bronx, New York. There is one of the, the buildings for the Otis Elevator Company, very common elevator company, and it is one floor. There are is no elevators really? in oh, the really? Otis Elevator building. Unless it's underground. I've never been in there, but I always found that baffling. So like my dad and I, Yeah, my dad and I would like walk by it or drive by it, and I'd be like, how like you can't even test out your product. <laughs> That's what the proving grounds are for, rather. Renting a, they rent a skyscraper across town. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Oh God, that's great. So, uh, so something I did want to talk about, and uh, that's gonna come up. Uh, I feel like it has to be blended with this this movie. It can't just be relegated to snacks. But I, I, watching this movie now, and after we've done cinemodities for so long, and we have the actual restaurant up and running, bleeding money, of course. I I think that we have to take some of the ways that Hudsucker Industries is run and apply that to our restaurant. I love the stuff where, you know, one, orientation, like we already mentioned, Tim Robbins' first day on the job, he just gets screamed at by some guy, and he's like, do this, do this, do this. If you don't do that, they dock you. You punch it at 8.30 every morning, except you punch it at 7.30 following a business holiday, plus it's a Monday, then you punch it at 8 o'clock. Punch it late! And they got this. This goes to seven. Mr. Matuzak. Incoming articles, get a voucher. Outgoing articles, provide a voucher. Move any article without a voucher, and they dock you. Take this off the secretarial pool on three. ASIP. Letter size oh, of green God. voucher. Folder size of yellow voucher. Partial size of maroon voucher. Hey, kid, this is for more to try. Chop, chop. Wrong color voucher, and they dock you. Six, seven, eight, seven, zero, four, nine, alpha slash six. That is your employee number. 
It will not be repeated! Without your employee number, you cannot get your paycheck! All right, this goes up to 27. Return a waiver! Do not return without a sign waiver! Intra-office mail is code 37. Intra-office mail is 37-3. Outside mail is 3-37. Code it wrong, and they dock you! I was supposed to have this on 28 10 minutes ago. Cover for me. This has been your orientation. Is there anything you do not understand? Is there anything you understand only partially? If you have not been fully oriented, you must file a complaint with personnel! File a faulty complaint? And they duck ya! And then they have all the employees do the moment of silence because wearing Hudsucker, as they say, passed into the infinite. And then they, they do like the three seconds of silence and then the voice over the uh, PA system goes, thank you for your kind attention. This moment has been duly noted on your time card and will be deducted from your pay. And I think that's kind of the, the tough ship that we need to be running at our restaurant, right? You're telling me we're not doing that already, Rob? I that's that's the other thing I had to say. Like, even if we've been explicitly or implicitly taking from this movie, maybe we could get even harder on our employees. Because that that's the good way to make a you know a friendly work environment, right? Especially when they're all machines once um a shrike <laughs> captures them, right? Well, yes. Yes. <laughs> I dig it. I can get behind that. Yeah, I, I love that, you know, this this that whole opening section where, you know, Tim Robbins in the mailroom, everybody's throwing stuff at him and he's like, do this, do that. Oh, it's so fast paced. It's so fantastic. Even the whole scene with it's just kind of like a big shift in the not the tone of the movie, but I guess, you know, the the feeling of the movie where he's working in the mailroom and then we get like the big, like dark ominous music when the blue letter comes in and everybody's screaming like blue letter and they're running and hiding like oh it's fantastic i love those little flourishes like we've been saying question about the blue letter sure so if tim robbins delivered the blue letter to the film wouldn't that have just basically invalidate the entire film or the entire plot oh yeah there wouldn't have been a movie then right that's that's what i mean because at the very end when we're having the moment where he opens the letter and he's frozen in time i'm like oh so like oh because so tim robbins now controls the company mm-hmm. and it's like wait if he if he would have delivered that letter none, none of this would have happened yeah, he would have given the, the blue letter to Paul Newman, to Musburger. Musburger would have, you know, not told the board about it, got the board to vote him to become the next CEO and the chairman, and then he would have owned 87% of the company. End of story. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about you know. that. I'm, I'm, it's like one of those ones where it's like, oh, okay. Yes, but of course, he doesn't deliver the blue letter because before he gives the blue letter to Paul Newman, he has to show off his grand idea. And Norville Barnes' grand idea for a product to create is a circle on a piece of paper. And he's saying things like, it's just this, I've been working on this baby for a few years. The great little flourish that I will always love, he takes out the piece of paper, and we're not kidding, if you haven't seen this movie, it's just a circle on a very old piece of paper that he keeps in his shoe. He takes it out, he shows it, 
And then he looks at it and turns it over. Like, he reorients the circle. That's how much care he has about this thing. And that's something I do like about this movie, is that, you know, the first time I saw this, I had no idea that this was going to be the hula hoop. I, I think that's something where it's like, what is this? It's just a circle on a piece of paper. It could be almost anything. You think it's nothing, you know, because that's how Paul Newman's like, wow, this guy's adult. He just adult. He just drew a circle. And I, I think that's something that works for this movie or, you know, I really enjoy about it is that it does turn out to be the hula hoop. Like the hula hoop is something Zach and I grew up with. Everybody knows what that is. But when you think about it, the design of it is it's just a circle. And it's a little crazier to think about that in this different perspective of, you know, how did that ever come to be? And I, I dig that about this movie. That's the only thing I've got to say, though, is that, like, I, as I was watching the film, I'm like, okay, he keeps showing this little drawing of a circle. I'm like, okay, what are they building towards? Clearly, this mm-hmm. is good crescendo at something. And I have to say is that the movie poster kind of ruins that, where it's him holding the hula yes. hoop. And I'm like, uh, wh- why did you have to do that? Like, having him holding the hula hoop doesn't mean anything. Um, yeah, and that, that kind of took some of the fun out of the movie for me, because I'm like, okay, I guess that's what it is. The movie poster is going to rob that moment. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good point. I guess I've, you know, like I said, finding this on HBO, I never saw the poster. Like, I saw this movie before I saw the poster. And it was only till years later when I, you know, tracked down a copy of this movie and it got the cover where I saw it. And I never really thought about it that way. But you're absolutely right. That's that's taking away some of the fun of this movie. That whole thing, it's like, what is this? What is this circle type of thing? Yeah, yeah, that's a bummer that they would put it and like you said you know at the beginning of this when you saw the poster you're like oh god this is going to be weird rob stuff because it's a dude you know with the yep. uh tim robbins with like the david lynch hair holding a hula hoop yep, and it's yep, just like yep. what the hell is this you know, you know it gives my, a lot away you know what i thought when i saw that poster i thought like it was some weird rob version of like flubber <laughs> Like, come on! You see that poster? Yeah, point, yeah. it, it's it's that like classic '90s poster, and you have that. You have like like Jack Nance hair. You have all this stuff. Hudsucker proxy. Rob's in love with this film, and it's like it's gonna be some weird crap. It's gonna be something. Somebody <laughs> doing something that's upsetting or just odd. And I'm like, I guess I had to accept this. Then you get this well-made, coherent film. And I guess I don't even know why the Coen's brothers thing. I like as soon as I saw Coen's brothers, I should have felt a little bit more at ease. But mm-hmm. considering they do weird crap too, so I don't yeah. know. But but yes, that poster does not. It's another one of those movies that like the marketing didn't do the film any favors. Yeah, definitely. I didn't maybe, watch any trailers for this or anything, but I'd be interested to see if that if the trailer gives a lot away as well. It's it's a '90s movie, so it was never. It, it's weird. The movie was gonna live or die off that trailer, um, but I don't know how you would. A, be able to sell this in a mass market sort of way. Mm-hmm. And two, I I don't think you, if you even hid those aspects of the film, I think you would have pissed off the audience the same. I think this is one of those movies that like, even as I was watching it, I'm like, oh, this would, been, this would be really fun for people to discover nowadays. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, this movie's still like, it's, even though it'd, it'd be much more digestible, like that fast pissed, uh, fast pissed, fast paced, witty dialogue, it's still like, I think there's a lot about this film that's A, I don't want to say too highbrow for its audience, mm-hmm. but you kind of have to know what you're getting yourself involved with this, with this film. And then two, it's so locked in that early 90s just set design. I think a lot of people yeah. would be like, eh. And it's, it's just a reason why, like, Warren Beatty, Dick Tracy is, like, a thing that exists and nobody talks about it. Like, it was a movie that made, like, $100 million 30 years ago, mm-hmm. yet nobody talks about it. It's, it's oh, yeah. same goes for Rocketeer. 
if it weren't for the fact that the Rocketeers found this weird niche audience, no one would talk about that movie either. Yeah, absolutely. In Hot Sucker Proxy, I'd say I don't think it's more obscure than Dick Tracy, but I've certainly seen seen Dick Tracy discussed more in the last like ten years. Yeah, I would, than, and I can't remember any time this was discussed. But to be fair, I I wouldn't recognize the title of this, so. Maybe I'm at fault for that. Yeah, like like we said, do I need a vaccine for that? <laughs> exactly. So I guess with everything we said, you know, especially about the, the marketing, we have no idea the name of it, all this stuff, the poster giving away that aspect of it. Um, uh, from what I found, this movie had a $25 million budget. And just like Gili, you're going to understand exactly what we mean when we say this number. I found that it grossed, against a $25 million budget, $2.8 million. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So it was a huge bomb back in 1994. Yeah, which I I I wholeheartedly believe, especially in the end, because this was also still when you had, which is this is the sort of movie though that like I could see becoming popular on HBO and like and like through like blockbuster. Mm-hmm. But it's odd that it couldn't even find an audience there. Like it's got it really nowadays. It's not weird when a movie bombs and it disappears, like like Mortal Engines. Because there's so much content out there nowadays, not just yeah. movies, but just like everything, whether it be podcasts, video games. But like back in the mid 90s, like your film comes out at bombs and it could usually find some sort of audience on home video or cable. Mm-hmm. And it's so odd when you have a film with Tim Robbins and Paul Newman directed by the Coen brothers and it can't find anyone. Yeah, yeah. Do you think in this day and age, uh, I don't, I don't know if this goes exactly what you're saying, but, you know, I think the of this day and age when things they don't know how to market things or something like that. You always hear that where it's like, let's just dump it on a streaming service. Do you think this would have been like a, a, this? I guess the analog of this came out today. Do you think this would have been like a, a dump on a streaming service? That's that's way too hard to gauge. And you're kind of doing that. OK, comparison sure. Of like it's kind of like picking the title. It's like you, I, I, you, ah. I'm trying to think of what the equivalent of dumping this would have been. Mm-hmm. I, I think the equivalent of, of just getting rid of it would have been cutting the budget from like 30 to $10 million. Okay. They cl- clearly somebody believed in this film. You don't, yeah. especially in the mid nineties, you don't write a check for $30 million. If you don't believe in it, especially from uh, Warner brothers. And I, cause even the thing I, I sent Rob a behind the scenes feature on this. Cause it should be pointed out that this film really has, no like bonus features on any of its home home video releases that was the just like uh Gigli, i was so upset to like see that they have a blu-ray of this from the warner brothers archive with no features and i'm nope. like damn it i'm like why <laughs> because because it's one of those things where it's it's not because think about it it cost money when this was made there that wasn't a thing i think about it. In the mid 90s there sure. weren't there weren't dvds so and on vhs tapes it was very rare to have any behind the scenes stuff so a lot of that footage is probably either lost or somebody has to go find it if there is behind mm-hmm. the scenes footage it's if it exists it's somewhere but you have to a pay someone to go find it yep. and then if they go find it and you have to figure out some coherent way to put it into a into a uh, oh god, a refined product like a featurette or something that costs money, and yeah. then you have to do another release, which even though that's not too expensive, that also is some financial investment. Then you have to pray that people will want to buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely you know a case of me screaming into the void, going, "Damn it, world, give me what I want." <laughs> yeah, which is disappointing. There's so many movies out there. Like I, I think Rob and I. Uh, 
it's something we're going to probably do in the next couple of months. We're doing another, uh, what are we calling it? Inexplicable masterpieces. Yes. And there's a movie called Wicked World, and that has a like 90 minute behind the scenes documentary, and it's this weird sort of just weird bizarro nonsense crap. Um, it's 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 not Rob crap. It's just crap with a capital <laughs> C. And that has a behind the scenes featurette. It's a 30 million dollar Coen's Brothers film starring Paul Newman and Tim Robbins. Doesn't. Mm-hmm. Because clearly there's more of an audience for for or more of a paying audience for inexplicable weird crap than there is for a moderately budgeted film that nobody remembers. Yeah, yeah, world's a weird place. <laughs> yeah, it is, and that's the thing. Is like, and, and I, I'm surprised that this they didn't try to revive this film maybe in the early 2000s during the DVD boom. Um, this way, especially when the Coen brothers were doing things like, Oh brother, where art thou? Yeah. Like, if, if they didn't feel they could have run with this back then, then there's never good. Unless like we found somebody, those, the people that were interviewed, um, for the set, the, oh God, not the set design, the, uh, the model designs, mm-hmm. they, that was clearly somebody doing it on their own accord. Yes. That person went and tracked down the artist that designed the miniatures. And that's the problem is that unless you have fans that want to track this down, the studio's not going to pump money into it. They're, they're mm-hmm. just not. You're, lu- you're lucky you got a Blu-ray. Yeah that's, something, yeah, that's something we can say for the Hudsucker proxy that Gili can't. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, once uh, once our episode on Gili gains the traction it deserves and we find Martin Bress, <laughs> uh so he can give me a copy of Hot Tomorrows and Hot Tongues for Gogan, uh, then we'll get the Blu-ray. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. Oh, fingers crossed. <laughs> That's our 2020 uh, New Year's resolution, folks. We are going to get that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, I guess um, I did want to highlight the um, back to the creation of the uh, hula hoop in this movie. One of my favorite scenes from it is when the R and D department is, or I guess the marketing department, whatever it would be, is trying to come up with the name of the hula hoop. I really love that whole like little montage of its production. Oh yeah, that was great. That's fantastic, and I I will never, ever, not find it funny when one of the names that they want to they pitch is the wacky circumference. <laughs> we'll call it the flying donut, the dancing dingus, the belly go round, the swingerino, the wacky circumference, Uncle Mitchell. <laughs> Could you imagine seeing that like on a store shelf or Googling like oh, the wacky circumference? That does not roll off the tongue. That's a lot of syllables. That, that folks, that is a Rob joke. See, when the Coen brothers are making this movie, they know. They knew. They knew that Rob was going to because <laughs> that that is Rob humor. Rob, oh, right? I would imagine that I like to imagine Rob sitting in his apartment watching this. He's just like he's like, that is a knee slapper as he slaps his knee. It's oh, like yeah. that that is right up his alley, but yeah, uh, I like that sequence too. The fact that we keep cutting back and forth between all these different departments getting involved with the hula hoop, mm-hmm. and we keep cutting back to the 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 marketing department, and we see the silhouettes behind the uh, the glass walls. They go back and forth, and we have one what, of set- which is Sam Raimi. That's his cameo in the movie. Sure, why why wouldn't it be? <laughs> and and we see the secretary reading War and Peace. Like, like that's that's the sort of stuff that I, that's the sort of stuff that's neat. That's the stuff I want. Yeah, and the flourish is very fleshed out with the one you mentioned, the um, the the secretary reading the book. Because I think the first two cuts, the one where they're just pitching names, it's War and Peace. It goes back to when they're like, 
uh, one of them really wants it to be the HUD swinger. And then one of them really wants it to be like the hoop sucker or something like that. And they're just fighting about it. It's still war and peace. But on the third one, when the guy at the typewriter gets up, and he's like, guys, I got it. It's Anna Karenina, another very long Tolstoy book. So I, I've always taken that to mean that, you know, they have taken so long to come up with this name that the secretary has been able to get through one of the longest books ever and is now on one of the second longest books ever. Oh, it's fantastic. That's the stuff that I'm surprised this film isn't remembered for. It is, it is clever and witty at times. The great and, scene where in that same montage where the, um, the, the accountant brings the big ledger book, he opens it, and it says, you know, like, production cost is 0.59, uh, suggested retail price, price is 0.79. The guy looking at it just shakes his head no, and so the accountant just draws a 1 in front of the 0.79. He's like, approved. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like I said, that there's a lot going on in that sequence. That's another thing too. And it's all everything's also competently edited. That's another part that really mm-hmm. people take for granted in a movie like this is that there was potential here. I think that's why they did get something like Fargo a couple years later. They they learned their lessons from this being so. Oh God, I don't want to say jarring, but so. Oh 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 God, what's what's the word for it? Um, Okay, I lost it. Uh, whatever. It's the idea that you have you have a film that really it's hard for people to get into. You have that sort of barrier to entry, and mm. Fargo removes that because you you have the film with all you have William H Macy, who is a very relatable character in that Francis McDormand, of course Steve Buscemi, and whatever his name is, the the big brawny a hitman. Yeah, they're they're their own thing, and you do you, clearly they've learned. They learned at that point what makes a yeah. film commercial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I, even on the the after the hula hoop and the succession, I love that when uh, the scene we already talked about where Jennifer Jason Leigh comes back and she's like, "Look what you've become, Norval Barnes." And one of the things where he she's like, "You've lost your way." She's talking about the hula hoop and she's like, "You know, it was for kids. It was it was going to be you know change the world." And she says, "You were going to invent a thingamajig that would bring everyone together, even if it keeps them apart spatially." Yeah, and it's yeah. like, oh, it's, it's fantastic. It's like that's that's great. That's you understand what you're writing and you know how to make fun of it. It's fa- oh, it's awesome. No, don't you remember how you used to feel about the hoop? You told me you were going to bring a smile to the hips of everyone in America, regardless of race, greed, or color. Finally, there'd be a thingamajig that would bring everyone together, even if I kept them apart spatially. This is this is this is a Rob film, folks. I would imagine Rob just like <laughs> like Rob like it's kind of like Rob goes to again everybody pardon the uh, the lewdness of the scenario. Rob goes to like the sperm donor clinic and he doesn't bring in any sort of like dirty magazine. He brings in the script to the Hudsucker proxy and he like reads that line by Jennifer Jason Lee. He's like, yeah, yeah, spatial distance, bring people together, space. That's that's what I like to imagine. Rob's like, yeah, I love this script. Oh, that's every, fantastic. Rob, now, now every, I'm. Continue just making fun of myself. I would love to, you know, see a, somebody, somebody in our fan base do a sketch of, <laughs> oh, of me going into the sperm bank, and it's like, would you like a magazine shirt, sir? Do you have any old Marlboro ads with women in them? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well played, great. sir. Well played. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's funny. Um, but yes, that this sort this script, I get. I, I, even like the whole boardroom scene and before uh, Mr. Hudsucker drop, I jumps out of the like the the glass uh, window. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like, this is a Rob movie. This is a Rob movie with a capital R, and uh, I get this. This is one of those yeah, movies. And- that- 
I'm glad that you feel that way. I was kind of, you know, I was hoping you'd feel that way, but I kind of figured you would. Um, but that's what confuses me. Going back to what I said at the beginning, like all the all my friends, you know, people I lived with in college, my my uh, and show this to, they're fine with the beginning of it, you know, and and the the once I think it gets into the romance and more of the fantastical elements, they get lost on it. But this is one of the ones I like. I said I want to discuss because I've never been. I've never understood why people don't get why I love this movie. Sure, Adventures in Babysitting. Once you get to know me and like my affinity for David Lynch and stuff, it's like, really? You like Adventures in Babysitting? But this just seems so up my alley. It kind of blows me away when people are surprised by it. This is a very formative Rob film. This is this is yeah. up there, like, like you said. This is up there with Freaked. Um, I have to ask: Did you ever own the DVD for this? No, unfortunately not. I thought to say, I remember that being on the bookshelf with like yeah. uh, the Thumb movies, uh, Triple Heck to Belleville, Heck Boy. I'm surprised that wasn't there. All the seasons of Lost. <laughs> I don't remember that. that. I think that was still, that was, was Lost still, yeah, Lost was still on the air during high school. Yeah, definitely. See, I don't think you had all those yet. Oh, okay, but, okay. But yeah, I'm so surprised because this one, I can't imagine this would have been a hard to find Blu-ray, especially with like with the internet and Amazon. No, yeah, I'm not sure why I never got one. But. It probably was on HBO all the time. It probably was not a hard <laughs> film to, to find. Like yes. on television. Yeah, that you're actually right, because you saying that reminds me of, you know, uh, I definitely watched this movie by myself. I don't think like it was ever like on at night. I, I definitely didn't catch it as like HBO does their Saturday night movie. It was on way before I think, you know, or if it ever was one of those, I found it so long after. But I never watched it even with my parents on HBO. Like, the only thing I remember is, you know, I think I had it on once, and my dad walked into the room, and he, like, was like, oh, this looks stupid, because my dad hates Tim Robbins. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, I, I gotta tell a story. Yes, I, um, yes because, I, because I knew you would remember this. Yes, because I, as I was watching this, I'm like, oh, because Tim Robbins doesn't exist anymore. Yep. Um, he, he's not, I, you don't hear about him at all. And I remember, I, I'm sorry, as I was watching this, I was like, wow, when Tim Robbins actually could act, he wasn't just a blowhard when it came to politics. And I remember when we saw Green Lantern, yeah. Ryan Reynolds' Green Lantern in the summer of 2011, your father turns around and he's like, wow, Tim Robbins, I guess he can still act. <laughs> yes. Yeah, my father does not like Tim Robbins for the political reasons. <laughs> yes. I keep referring to the Tim to Tim Robbins as his name, but like, do people even know who he is? Should we give like an explanation as to who Tim Robbins is? Jeez, um, I'm trying to. Uh, of course, as we've established, no one knows this movie, so they wouldn't know him here. I, I don't think anybody remembers Green Lantern. If they do, they don't remember his part in it as what a scientist. No, um, no he's a, isn't he a, a Elephant Man guy's father? Maybe. <laughs> that, that, I remember he's somebody's father. He's the guy who has a deformed head's father. Okay, yeah, I, I, I don't remember a lot of that movie, um, but I, I guess what most people would know him from, God, if even, he's, um, he's the, uh, I was going to say, uh, he has the minor role in Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny oh, as like geez. the bad guy, at one, you know, he's the one who's like, he has the peg leg and he's like, he's trying to get the Pick of Destiny, I think, like he's been searching for it his whole life, he had it at one point and lost it, and there's that scene where they're, he's like, 10 feet away from Jack Black and Kyle Gass and he has a switchblade out and he's like, come here. Come here so I can cut you. And they just walk away from him. That's the last thing I think I've seen. Uh, him. We got it! Fuck yeah! Let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> nice work, boys. Now, toss that pick over here nice and slow. 
or I will cut you from hole to hole. Then you might as well kill us, man. Because there is no way in hell we're giving you this fucking pick. Okay. So be it. Come over here. I'm going to fucking stab you. What? No. We're not coming over there. Fine. Stay where you are, then. I'm going to come over there. I'm going to slice out your eyes and your balls. And then I am going to stick your eyes in your ball sacks. And then I will take your balls. And I will put them in your eye holes. Dude, we could totally outrun it. Totally. Let's bail. We can come back here. Come back with my pick. I'm trying to think of what people would recognize him from. Like, actual... Yeah. He's been around forever, but it's just one of those things where it's like he's kind of, I'd say, he's in the has-been camp now. Definitely. Or yeah, past his prime. Firmly past his prime. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't know. I haven't even heard of him in, like, any TV shows. I feel like, you know, when people fall out of their prime and stuff like that, they move to, like, some miniseries or HBO thing well, or he, anything like that. I guess that. you should say that he probably is doing some streaming show probably he probably yeah. something on hulu or amazon prime or netflix that that's just easy work nowadays oh uh, he was I, in um would people remember him from what the uh mystic river right yeah yeah people possibly would remember him from okay that. okay people have to look him up if they want to know more about tim robbins yeah yeah Go, google tim <laughs> robbins you want to know about him because robin and i are probably just as ignorant as you are yeah, he's he's just this is when I think of Tim Robbins, like I said, I think of this and Tenacious D. <laughs> there you go. I would imagine it's exactly what he wants to be remembered for. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, geez. Yeah, Tim Robbins. Who knows? Hey, kids. While editing this episode, we realized that we forgot Andy Dufresne from the Shawshank Redemption, which is probably Tim Robbins' most notable role. We forgot this because we're obtuse. And in addition, Rob has also watched multiple times over the HBO series The Brink, which features Tim Robbins and Jack Black. So, t Tim Robbins, I, I think we kind of like you. I don't know if that's what this uh, episode gives off, but we felt we needed this correction. So, uh, I, guess, I guess while we're on the topic of Tim, Ro Tim Robbins, I... I do like his performance in this film, and there's one very small moment I want to highlight because it's always stood out to me, and it's the scene where he has his ego all inflated. I think um, Jennifer Jason Leigh gets mad at him, so he kind of goes into a depressive state, um, and there's that one scene. He's having like that dream sequence to um, the Figaro song where he's dancing with that woman in like the the satin shawls and whatever. And mm -hmm. he's awoken from his dream when Buzz comes into his office and he pitches, Buzz pitches his idea of a circle, which turns out to be the bendy straw. And there's that whole thing where Tim Robbins is like, this is the stupidest idea. You know, we do great work here at Hudsucker Industries. And he fires Buzz. And when he delivers the line, you're fired, like his voice cracks in a certain way that I have always just found so enthralling. Does this does this stand out to you at all? He's like, you're fired, type of thing. I can't have every deadbeat on the Hudsucker payroll pestering me with their idiotic brainwaves. Jason, I'm sorry, buddy. An example must be made. What do you mean, buddy? You're fired. Uh, no, because I think that's just part of the conventional, like, character arc of somebody who started on the bottom like that's how think about it it's him going into paul newman's office oh the idea, sure. 
yeah, I think it's meant to show the the ju- not only say juxtaposition, but the notion of okay, this is how he came into the office, and now he's doing the exact same thing. He's now, and not for the character. That's a weird thing too. I think there's a little bit of a disconnect here. Is that we never have a moment in that sequence where Paul Newman's like telling him get out of my office, where the Tim Robbins character is like, oh, he feels humiliated. At, at no point when it comes to the the, the paper basket yes. that's on fire. Uh, he never feels humiliation in that sequence. So we have the the elevator operator, and he is clearly being humiliated. It's weird. Clearly, we're, we're having a weird payoff that's never set up properly. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think there's a little bit of a, a thematic disconnect there. Yeah, you're, you're right. There is no embarrassment in that first scene with Tim Robbins and Paul Newman like there is with Buzz. Um, but yeah, we'll get the clip in again if we didn't already. But the, the way he says that, you're fired. I just absolutely love. You're fired! I uh, speaking, you reminded me in that scene when Paul Newman, you know, he, he doesn't want Tim Robbins in, in the office anymore. And the, he, he's, I guess we should say that Tim, uh, Paul Newman has like two phones against his ear and stuff like that. And he's has to go meet uh Bumstead for the Bumstead contract. And Paul Newman says something like, get out of here, leave my office. And Tim Robbins is trying to put the fire out in the waste paper basket. And he runs to the windows to try and open them. And he's like feeling around all the windows in the office to see if he can open any of them. <coughs> and Paul Newman says something like, "Not that way through the door." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, those little touches—they're just fantastic. It comes at you so fast. Oh, I dig it. There's a lot to like about this film. It, it's it, it's witty, but the problem is, I, I forget the exact moment, but it's toward the end where we're having—I I forget what it is. Uh, somebody's bickering they're saying like no 20 no it's not it's not the 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 mezzanine and and how many floors to the building um but something similar to that at the end where it's like someone's like no don't say that say this no say that say this Mm -hmm. no say this not that and i'm like okay okay we get it we get it you think you're clever calm down now sure yeah it's that sort of stuff where it's like i think they went overboard and audiences in 1994 just weren't prepared for that it's like again uh, Mm -hmm. pulp fiction you know pulp fiction made a lot of money um i never i don't think pulp fiction became the sort of ubiquitous thing until much later in its existence okay um it it wasn't that sort of thing trying to like it wasn't like like everybody forgets like in the early 90s force gump was like the ubiquitous entertainment like when it came to movies like everybody oh, yeah. knew like my father who never liked buying movies had a physical copy of force gump uh, something like like we look now and we think of like okay we like i think we i forget what episode we talked about or it could have even been a star wars thing we did but it was the um thing that, like in 1982 what movies are we talking about and it was like oh like we talk about wrath of khan more than we talk about i, I forget what the hell was that uh halloween three season of the witch maybe sure. that's what it was it was the idea that like oh just because something's popular in the moment it was released in yeah. doesn't mean that it has like resonance and i think i think i referenced that to et it was like et obviously being one of the biggest films of all time in in the 80s even to this day but like we don't there's infinitely more uh, uh film criticism on like the thing in halloween three season of the witch than there is on et now because there's really there's not much substance to ET that you like in today's day and age we like to delve into with movies. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely. And right. that and that's why like in 1994 audiences especially Hudsucker Proxy, but even like something like Pulp Fiction, it, like it was popular in those sort of circles, but it took years for that film to be the wow, this is the greatest thing cuz think about it, like nowadays 
if a filmmaker made something like Pulp Fiction in today's era, they'd immediately be signed to some like two hundred million dollar film. Mm-hmm. Something something like you're similar to like Taika Waititi or Ryan Johnson. Like you make a like yeah. a really clever film and immediately Hollywood like writes you a check in Colin Madman Trevorrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, what's his name? Tarantino's next film after that was Jackie Brown. Yes. Oh, I love that movie. And, and that's and that's not spectacle. That's not what you'd expect from somebody's follow-up to to Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Definitely. Samuel Jackson looks like a ghoul in that movie. It's so weird. Yep. yep. And that's that's what it is, though. And that's what people have to realize. That, like 90s culture, especially in the early 90s was much different than what we look at now with everything's just kind of instantaneous before like somebody had made made some made a very well-made film that was kind of profound it took time it wasn't just simply okay here's your your six-figure budget mm-hmm. go nuts not six-figure uh, uh nine-figure budget sure yeah absolutely and up <laughs> and even then there was i think about nine-figure budgets were rare like in 1990 four five titanic being the most expensive film of all time with like a 200 million dollar budget mm-hmm. now like most of your modern tent poles are easily 250 million dollars in north oh yeah definitely crazy yes but that's the thing it's context you have to kind of realize that when this film was released we did not like if, if somebody saw this all they could do was tell a handful of friends and that was it they couldn't go on twitter uh, Kanye couldn't tweet about how great the the proxy film about Huds is. Um, <laughs> that that just didn't exist. You didn't have that like uh, what's the word uh, 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 communication that we have yep. now. But mm-hmm. at the same time, though, is that things could break out because there wasn't so much noise. Different time, different time. We in, we're in now for sure. So I di- I think I just have a, a a few more minor things I wanted to point out. Um, uh, had to mention. Uh, at the the Hudsucker fundraisers or stockholders gala, uh, we get an appearance by none other than Peter Gallagher as the Dean Martin type of ripoff. And of course, whenever I see Peter Gallagher, uh, I, yeah. I would always think of, of course, Police Chief Dodds from season 16, 17, 18 of SVU. Zvu, sorry. But we also have to mention his possibly greatest role ever as the father in After, right? I, I, okay, this is something I've been meaning to tell Rob forever, and I always forget <laughs> about it, but I'm so glad now that I remember it's on a recording. Perfect. Did you know they're making a sequel to After? Oh, oh, oh what is it called? Do we have a name? <laughs> is it before? Is it after again? Is it succeeding? <laughs> is it a synonym for After? It has to be something that it's like, what's, what's How another do you make ter- a sequel to that? I guess they're 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 together, and she she doesn't want ketchup on her hot on her French fries again. <laughs> they put they put more they put more condiments on her uh, starchy uh, food items that she doesn't like. Oh, jeez. Maybe, maybe they put ranch dressing <laughs> on her uh, tater tots, and she's like, "Can I can I want eat these?" I uh, okay. So um, I'll I'll let Jeremy know. And, uh, <laughs> the three of us. The- well, well, we won't be 27 anymore when it comes out. Maybe we'll be 28 or 29, but the three of us will sit alone in a movie theater making fun of the sequel. Perfect. Yes, it'll be fun. <laughs> that was like, oh, God. We, we, oh, God. I don't know. Like, that's one of those movies that maybe, maybe for the two year anniversary episode, we'll go back and just like maybe listen to the commentary um, pieces of it because sure. there is, like, that's like, it's, I remember, like, oh, that movie being like, what was it, uh, uh, sexy fan fiction for Twilight? 
Yeah, I remember. No, I will no, never I'm sorry. Forget. Sexy fan fiction for Harry Styles. Harry Styles. Yeah, I will never forget when we were trying to figure out what to. I also should say this is the only way I want to reference our Avengers Endgame episode. When we were figuring out what to see beforehand, I think you know a lot of it came down to Zach with the the logistics of that day. But when you texted me, I will never forget. I got it. You're like, okay, we got to see this movie after. Apparently, it's a script based on fan fiction of Harry Styles. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, you sold me. <laughs> and the weird thing is, like, that movie's supposed to be like a, a, a teenager love story. Yep. But, like, there's nothing, like, romantic about the movie. Like, like, and, like I, I, I don't know. That, I, I have literally no memory of that movie other than the French fries. The French fries, yeah, yeah. And at one point, like, she's living, I know, like, what? Selma Blair is her mother and cuts her off. Then she immediately goes and lives with the boyfriend. And then, like, the whole crux okay maybe i remember a lot more of this movie then the entire <laughs> crux of it is the idea that like it was a bet on a cell phone video yes because at the the first time where the the girl like at college goes out of her shell and goes to the party she's hanging out with the friends who are all doing you know raunchy stuff but this movie's so like restricted it's like the raunchy stuff is uh, what are they are one they? beer yeah and one beer something stupid like that and they're like oh you should make out with this this dude and she's like no i don't want to do it i have morals or whatever and then we find out later that after that happened someone took a cell phone video of what one person daring harry styles knockoff <laughs> to get her to become his girlfriend type of thing yeah Oh God! You know what? It's so yeah. predictable the way that plays out. The it's way you so expect weird. it to play out, it plays out. <laughs> but they also have like weird, like not sex in a lake. Oh, I forgot about that scene. They have like right, <laughs> they, like they, they get like disrobed. They go into a lake. They start kissing. Like they come out of the lake, and it's like, did did they do it in the lake? Yeah. Oh, jeez. You don't want to do it in the lake. Think of all the infections you could get. Oh, that's man. that's kind of like the Ted Bundy director being like, think of all the infections he got. <laughs> it's like you don't want to have sex in the lake. That no, that's not good for anybody. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Don't go to any uh, still body of water. At least the Friday the Thirteenth movies. If there's anything sexual going on in lakes, it's fine because they get killed immediately afterwards. Exactly. The <laughs> infection is not from downstairs. It's from being like impaled on like a rusty machete. Jeez. Oh, Maybe if a, if after ever pops up on YouTube for some reason, we could do a live stream of that. If <laughs> <laughs> the, the copyright finally lapses, that we can find. Yeah. It goes into the public domain. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, jeez. I cannot believe there's going to be a sequel for that movie. I can't wait. <laughs> How do you cast the actors? The actors have to be like in their mid twenties by now. Like they get to yeah. look like more adults. I have no clue. I have no clue what it would even be about. There's no reason for it. There's no reason for the first one. But it, I'm I'm glad to hear this. Thank you for letting me know, Zach. <laughs> sure, I'm glad. I'm glad I finally remembered it. But thank you for jogging my memory. Most. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have looked up anything about that movie. No, <laughs> ever again. Well, I forget what happened. Something came up though, like I could have watched that for free or somewhere. And I'm like, why? I'm like, why am I gonna bother? I think I even told Rob that. I'm like, I was gonna, I was able to get a copy of that for free. And I'm like, why? I'm never going to watch it. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Unless, unless you, okay. I guess we should say that after is worth watching if you have the uh, cinematis and and inferiority complex commentary playing over it. Oh, yes. That's the only thing we've talked about ever doing with it is matching our commentary 
which was live with the movie to an actual version of the movie, like yeah. a mystery science theater 3000 type of thing. And yeah, cause that was, that was a grand old time for sure. <laughs> yes. A grand old time that we pretty much have no memory of whatsoever. <laughs> oh, oh, perfect. <laughs> oh boy. Yes. Uh, Peter Gallagher is in both movies. Odd connection, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I guess the last one I wanted to bring up, um, is it goes across to another, I guess, something we've been discussing about. But uh, this movie and uh, another movie always make me think of each other with one specific set. And we've already mentioned the director, Quentin Tarantino. I saw this movie before I saw Inglorious Bastards, but solely for the spiral staircase in the beatnik bar that Norville Barnes goes up drunkenly. Whenever I see this, it makes me think of the uh, the spiral staircase in the German bar. Oh yeah, in Inglorious Bastards. You know that whole scene with the what is it? You know the line: "Say all Wiedersehen to your Nazi balls." Right. Good old that and uh, the Mexican standoff. Yeah, yeah, that whole thing. And so you know, whenever I see one of those movies, it makes me think of the other one because the it's almost like the spiral staircase is featured so prominently. Not as much in Hudsucker Proxy, but we do get like a little interaction of characters while they're on it it's like it's its own character i love it yeah no yeah that's uh that was a neat sequence because I, I know that's gonna be one of my things for a uh, component of the cinematis restaurant the beatnik bar Ooh, right on right on well i guess then uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about this movie or should we get to our questions uh no i think i've said my entire piece about this film. right on right on all right well, I guess we're starting with our cinemodities in late night. Um, uh, I think it's just, I realize now that this is my second unexpected love movie. I have the same thing to say about late night that I had for Adventures in Babysitting, always and forever. I certainly want to show this to more people. Um, it, I would love to show this to, you know, someone and like Zach, but in, in person. And they're like, I get it. I get what you love this, whether or not they love it or not. But I think it's just going to go with any of my unexpected love movies or any movie I love, whether it be unexpected or not. It's an always and forever late night. Cinemodities, I think this goes back to what I said about the um, the fantastical, the, the, the fairy tale-esque element to some of this stuff. I would say 100%. This movie works so well for me, and to this day, I don't think I've seen anything else that pulls off what this movie does, at least in how I react to it and what I get from it. So I'm going to go 100% to both. Uh, cinemodities, yes, um, because for all the aforementioned reasons, and, mm -hmm. and yeah, it, it's there. Uh, mostly because it's a forgotten Coen's Brothers film that's actually pretty good. Yeah, that's and it has a, and it has a lot of effort put into it. Late night movie, I don't know because it is it's clever, but it's not weird. That's one thing I gotta say about this movie: is that it doesn't feel other than like some of the like I said, some of the weird like it's weird, but not in the sense of like odd weird it's sure. weird because it's doing things stylistically that most films at the time even to this day don't do i think that's more why it's a cinemati but for late night movie it's gonna be a no from me dog <laughs> okay i know you said that before we need the randy jackson clip of him saying that <laughs> there's like a what thousand is? of them he said that like every single week for like 10 years straight we need the super cut we need the eight hour super cut you oh think someone's God. put that It'd together be, it would be longer than eight hours <laughs> everybody forgets that like in the early 2000s that was like literally all everybody cared about was american idol then after like oh, the yeah. second season everyone was like f this to the point where people don't even remember that clay aiken came in second the second year 
Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't even remember that. Yeah, remember that Simon Cowell just like chewing people. Remember when that was exciting when British people chewed out people with no talent? Gordon Ramsay made an entire freaking career out of it. Yeah, what he's got like eight shows now, (laughs) like fifteen restaurants. Mm Hmm. That's why. Yeah. It's it's it's, yeah. God, American Idol. American Idol was awful. Yeah, I I never had a an affinity for that, and I I think still to this day, if it hasn't come up in a while, but you know. Whenever I watch America's Got Talent, I'm like, get the singers out of here. They should have their own show, you know, because people are shit insane for that. You know, you have someone with actual talent doing something clever that you've you've never seen on TV before, and it loses out to a fucking six-year-old that can sing poorly. God, I hate it. (laughs) Yeah, anybody who watches reality television, you have my condolences. (laughs) Right on. All right. Well, uh, with those questions being answered, are you ready to work on the restaurant again? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. We are are firmly in the phase where we are still working on the restaurant becoming mobile. That's going to take some time, uh, but I'll I'll keep updating everybody. Don't worry. Uh, It's just costing way more money. I think that, you know, we just become like we just need like a way to print our own money. It seems Mark Cuban's even running out at this point. Um, but like I said already, we need to take a lot of how the Hudsuckers industry business is run, apply that to uh, our restaurant. In if we are, are already are, that's fine. Maybe we get some more ways to be even stricter. Um, I would go as far to say have the guy who's doing Norval Barnes's orientation just hire him for the restaurant. He does it perfectly. Um, I, I think that, you know, a lot of it, we can take the essence from and imply it in certain ways. But the thing that I wanted to ask you, Zach, is now that we firmly established that we have a huge space, infinite, you might call it, do we need a mail room? <laughs> do we need a way to like get communication across this infinite void? Because if it is infinite, uh, I feel like we would almost maybe if not a mail room, but uh, maybe a series of like pneumatic tubes. Will we get <laughs> cell phone service in an infinite void? Will oh, there be boy. cell towers in an infinite void? It's really got me thinking I... about like how do we communicate? Like if you're in the Vox Lux room and I'm, you know, lost in a hole in the wall with John Ratzenberger, how are we going <laughs> to communicate to each other? <laughs> uh, I don't know, Rob. I've never thought about that before. I, I just kind of figured somehow, uh, There'd be some sort of like mystical energy we could kind of like tap into that we can communicate with each other. But no, that's a very, uh, for a very insane, unrealistic place, that is a very practical question that we need to answer. Like I said a year ago on our first year extravaganza, we were going to be better about running our restaurant. And I'm sticking to that still. We got to hit all the logistics for sure. But yeah, we need some way to communicate because I don't want to give, you know, just as, as much as we do already, I don't think we should have just like, give each other complete carte blanche for restaurant decisions. Like if something's going down in the Vox Lux room, you know, I want to be at least apprised of the situation before a decision is made. Right. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Sure. (laughs) That's that's, that's the only answer you can have to any of this folks. Sure. The inflection you put on that was fantastic. Zach's just like, yes, Rob, I've thought about this. (laughs) Said the person that has never thought about it. (laughs) Oh, that's perfect. So, so yeah, I think um, that's something we should work on, you know, how to make the restaurant run smoother, things of that nature. Because we always talk about how to make the customers kind of move through, like the whole waiting room, the ferry thing, 
um, getting them out of there with Shrike capturing them or catching up to them or whatever, <laughs> filtering them through the the um, the gift shop at the end, getting their bump of coke. We need more for the employees now. I think that's the next step that we got to get to. And hopefully, you know, we don't pick anything that's going to get thrown off when we go mobile, you know? We're going to have straps, to say the least. Yes. So the other things, I guess now to actual food items, um, well, I guess I had one more that wasn't a food item, but something we can sell in the gift shop, like we talked about, we have um, the Cinemodities branded jizzles. I know those are for the employees. And I, I don't know if we ever talked about selling those in the gift shop, but maybe in terms of swag, you know, something you can get to advertise or have people, you know, give us that free publicity. I think that we should in-house manufacture and sell Cinemodities restaurant branded wacky circumferences. What do you think? <laughs> yes, Rob. And we don't sell it to people who call them hula hoops. Yeah, like if no, they if no. they pick one up and they're like, oh, a hula hoop. Like we get someone to come out, rip it out of the kid's hand, and go, you don't get this because you didn't call it the proper name. And I would imagine hula hoop is is trademarked, right? <laughs> no, it can't be. Oh, you don't think so? Oh, it's become. I don't know. Maybe somebody did it. Probably it wasn't originally. Someone probably did, but not probably the original creator. I mean. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I see. What probably you're saying. So, probably it existed as some thing, and then it was like probably called again, like you said, wacky circumference. And then it's like okay, hula hoop. And then someone just like did that. It's kind of like the idea that like band aid. Or yeah, Kleenex. that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, absolutely. Or the original product probably didn't come copy, like trademark with that name, but just over time it just adapted that. Sure. Okay. Okay. So yeah, we're gonna have Cinemodities restaurant wacky circumferences. Um, the the then the actual food items I have were on the uh, establishing shot of the stockholders gala. We get just a like a a shot of the invitation card to the Hudsucker Industries shareholders gala, whatever it's called, and. While that's on screen, you can see at the bottom where it's like giving you the information about it. It says, you know, it says something about a formal attire required and uh, a few other things are listed and there's like semicolons separating them. And one of the things it says is refreshments will be served. And then after that, in the same line or the same kind of idea, in parentheses, it says dainties. So uh, from what I found, this is kind of, you know, of course, this movie set in the 50s. Um, 1950, end of 1958, start of 1959. And from what I found, like that was the, the old school fancy name for hors d'oeuvres. They'd be dainties, they'd be finger foods. But I love the idea of just like refreshments and then in parentheses, dainties. Because I feel like if we put that on a menu today, no one would have any idea what it means. You know, I feel like if someone read that, they'd be like, do you mean doilies? Be like, no, dainties, like the food, right? <laughs> Maybe yeah, that could go in our sure. catering side. Have we ever talked? I think we that come up briefly before oh, catering Jeez. stuff. But- oh, good lord, Rob! I don't know if we can you- handle that. <laughs> people, people order stuff and it just never comes. It's like I ordered <laughs> something. Well, well, we don't know where it is. We're working on our communication system. <laughs> Perfect, but yeah, okay. When we do branch out to the catering, you know, we'll have the option for dainties. What that might be, we don't know yet, but dainties. <laughs> dainties. I like that. It, so, it sounds kind of sexy, too. So people are like, ooh, a dainty. I don't know. I'm kind of a little turned on right now. So, and then the uh, the last <laughs> one I had was the uh, the scene that we discussed where Norval Barnes meets uh, Amy Archer, Jennifer Jason Leigh's character, in the diner, and the taxi cab drivers are narrating it. Um, 
one of the things that when Jennifer Jason Leigh like uh, sits down, even though even though I've always thought you can't hear it in the movie, it is in the subtitles. When she orders food and then she can't pay for it, and that's how she tries to get Norval Barnes to uh, attract his attention, she orders the light lunch, as the cab drivers yes. call it. She says, according to the subtitles, cottage cheese. Oh. That's it. That's it. She doesn't say anything with cottage cheese. The subtitles just say, like, cottage cheese. And then later on, when Norval Barnes takes her back to his office and they're getting to know each other, when Norval Barnes takes the sip of whiskey and it, like, burns his throat, he runs to the bathroom, she is, like, looking through his desk to find out information about him. And to gauge when he's going to come back, she's talking to him. And she says something like, are you okay? Was it your lunch? The chicken a la king? Is the chicken a la king repeating on you? I love that phrase for, for, having, for food making you sick. Is it repeating on you? Are you all right? Is it your lunch, the chicken a la king? Is the a la king repeating on you? So I figured we would have like the Hudsucker platter, not the Hudsucker proxy, but it would be chicken a la king and cottage cheese. Yum. I don't. Really, yeah, I don't, I don't really like uh, cottage cheese. I would say, uh, and chicken a la king is another creamy thing. You know, it's diced chicken and some type of cream sauce. So I feel like those would not go together well, and that just fits the motif of the restaurant perfectly. <laughs> uh, yeah, eh, fine. At least it's edible. We need more edible things on the restaurant fair, menu. Fair. So. It might not be pleasant, but it's yes. <laughs> yes. No one's going to ever order it, though, but it's there. So we give the health inspector when they show up. And then when a customer who orders this asks where the bathroom is, we can have the wait staff say, is the chicken a la king repeating on you? There you go. <laughs> I'm just imagining that line from someone wearing like a, a full body costume caricature. As, uh, <laughs> everybody should remember our wait staff wears. <laughs> the Robin Zach waiters. Yeah, absolutely. That was it. Those were my snacks. What do you got? Um, I like the elevator idea. I like having... I haven't even talked about having the Cinematis restaurant be multiple floors. Or if it's just one giant void. I don't know how that... Do voids have uh, floors? That's a good point. Because I've always imagined... I don't think we ever talked about it. But I've always imagined it, imagined it being infinite in width. Like it... Like it just goes on forever. Like yeah. you can't see any walls or anything, or it's, you can only see like, two walls. <laughs> it's like the Otis Elevator, fa- like we call it, uh, t- like offices. It's just <laughs> one giant, like single story. But but no, since you know we've talked about how it's it's finite on the outside, but infinite on the inside. There's no reason it couldn't be infinite upwards as well. Sure. Um. Okay. So we need we need an elevator with an elevator operator. So I oh, figured absolutely. that's that's. That's easy. Plus, I like I, the reason why I also suggest this too is because Rob brought up the idea of uh, elevators. I don't think I've ever told him this story that, um, but freshman year when it was Sal and I in college and we lived in the giant dormitory towers that were like 23 stories high. Yeah. Um, what, what him and I would do was like before people, as Rob can tell you, like any sort of college campus, there's set times when classes start and end. So you can usually gauge when there's live activity on campus going to and from the, the dorms. Oh, yeah. So what Sal and I would do is that when people were coming back or going to, we would, like, about 10 minutes prior to that that time period, we would go up to the um, – we'd take the elevator up to the highest floor and then run down the entire stairs and push the open um, the up and down buttons. And then we'd go to the first floor just to watch <laughs> people get frustrated. So why aren't the elevators working? Why, are they dis- why aren't they moving? And we would just sit there and just, like, like – 
hardy har har and we would just do that on like, we didn't do that a lot we did it for the first like month or so sure but um yeah i i think i would imagine we're gonna have some bratty teenagers in the restaurant maybe those same kids that um call call the people <laughs> oh, okay um, may, maybe it's them but yes i like that as an idea having the the elevators yeah definitely i like that and i, I love the idea of having an elevator operator for sure um that that just gives us it gives a sense of class to the restaurant that I think we need. <laughs> yes, it's severely lacking. Um, and then the other thing I have is the beatnik bar. We need Steve Buscemi is the beatnik bartender, and every time somebody tries to order an actual like alcoholic drink, he's like, "We don't sell those, sir." And it's the we- juice and coffee bar. <laughs> Martinis are for squares, man. <laughs> yes. And the whole time, like, I've been to every bar in this city, and I've ordered a martini. I want a martini. <laughs> yeah, okay, I get behind that. Yeah, I like I like Steve Buscemi as the beatnik bartender, for sure. Um, that's a great little set piece, you know, like we said, with the um, spiral staircase and how they got, what, poetry slams going on there every New Year's Eve or whatever Jennifer Jason Lay says. Okay, so would this be another, are we adding, like, another room type of thing, like we did with Adventures Babysitting, like, the blues room? Are we going to have, like, a beatnik bar area? I would imagine something okay. like that. Okay, with the spiral staircase and everything? Sure, Rob. You can have your spiral sp- staircase instead of the elevator. That's the only way to make sure you don't end up, like, waiting online. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so you can either take the, the stairs or the elevator. Perfect. Perfect. I have to say, I do like spiral staircases in general. They're, they're neat, right? <sighs> Why not? <laughs> we need more of them. They we save need space. More of them. They might make you dizzy, but they save space. All right, Rob, so how are we going to end this week's episode? Ooh, all right. I guess first off by saying that next week is going to be our last Unexpected Love movie in this month, in this series. And I want to bring this up because everybody knows our structure by now. We know what we follow. We've only broken it for the fourth month, and Zach wants to purge that from history. Um, This, though, I want to say it because... No one should get comfortable. We've been having this neat thing where, you know, we've been saying, like, guess who loves this movie this week? Just because we've done one Rob, one Zach, one Rob, don't think next week is going to be a Zach one. We might throw you a curveball. So eh, don't get comfortable at the Cinemodities restaurant or podcast. It's not going to be good for you. So I wanted to throw that out there. Um, But other than that, to end this episode, we have to use the main theme from the Hudsucker Proxy, like I said, it goes without saying when I said I love every aspect of this movie. The music is fantastic, and the main theme is, ever since I saw this, it's, I keep it on my phone. I listen to it often, and it is none other than the Adagio of Spartacus and Phrygia from Cacciatorian's ballet Spartacus. And I figured I can say that so we can get a clip of it forward in here, but then we can play it in reverse as well. It's some great classical music.
remember, folks, you never want to feel comfortable listening to a podcast. <laughs> too too many podcasts give you that sense of security, and and like you're you're just another friend listening to the conversation. You should be insecure while you're listening I, to I'd, us. I'd like to make an amendment to the restaurant, much like on the Hudsucker building we have, the future is now. There should be written on the Cinemati's restaurant, like facade, we never want you to feel comfortable. <laughs> Don't get comfortable? Yes. Something like that? <laughs> yes. Watch your back? <laughs> no, that's too much worse. We're kind of like, it's like it's eating up more and more. Remember, the infinite void's inside the restaurant, not the outside. Fair. Okay. Okay. Fair. I like it. Gotta be concise on the <laughs> exterior. Don't we have another plaque Catch, or something? Catchphrase or something? Yes, yeah. We probably do. We probably do. Yeah. We're never going to run out of room inside, so we can throw them everywhere. 